Hey, spooky film fans. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and reevaluate movies that bombed at the box office or maybe the critics weren't very nice to. Brad, this is part two of our spooktober, spooktacular season that's devoted to sequels. So we're doing a sequel on sequels. It's very meta. Yes. Holy Christ in heaven, too. We have a banger this week. <laughs> banger. Uh, hey, hey, a movie so nice they made it twice, Troy. That's right. So this is this is going to be an unusual podcast uh, episode simply because this was my pick, and I wanted to pick a film that has always kind of fascinated me, uh, and we'll get into the production and development, but it also, personally, this franchise has a lot of history. And in order to tackle something that uh, is so divisive and has a lot of layers to it, we had to bring somebody on um, that could really hang with us when we when we do a deep dive on some of the themes, right? So yeah, like the uh, Major League Baseball playoffs are going on right now, so we have made a call to the bullpen to bring in the old righty from the bullpen. So here we go. Yes, yeah, so I, I'm I'm excited to have for week number two. Jose, back to the show. Jose, how are you doing this evening? I'm I'm doing great. By the way, uh, it's the left hand. <laughs> oh, oh, you're a lefty. Southpaw. Yeah. It's a, a different feel. <laughs> so, Brad, you you want to introduce the film that we're talking about tonight? Yeah. So we are doing uh, Dominion, the prequel to The Exorcist. Yeah. And you can't really talk about this film without talking about exorcist the beginning yes so most of our conversation will focus on dominion but you're right brad i mean we we will to be fair dominion is the bigger bomb and started production first yes it was filmed first yes um we'll get into that but at least second but yeah so this is part of the exorcist franchise um the exorcist came out in 1973 I, i mean it's fair to say that film pretty much revolutionized horror films for Hollywood. Is is that is that an accurate statement? Yes. Accurate. I mean scared the crap out of everybody. Yeah, I, I remember the first time I, I I vividly remember the first time I watched The Exorcist in my basement, renting it from Blockbuster and pissing my pants. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you you came to this uh, through like a video rental. So were you watching it with a bunch of, of friends? Yeah, I remember my my friend and I my friend Jeff and I, we rented this. Um, we had heard everything about it. My parents were the cool parents who were just like, yeah, just go watch it downstairs in the basement. You'll be fine. And they didn't even ask you like, what well, I was watching or whatever. And I remember turning it on and just, uh, of course you got to get through like the middle East stuff. Um, and then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I am completely scared. And it's 15 minutes into this movie. So how, how old were you? When I you- was probably 10 or 11. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's that's a ride, man. Yep. Uh, okay, Jose. And, and I was I was a I was going I was a Catholic at the time too, so that's very important to I guess uh, speak to because that's a good point. So all all three of us um, have a little bit of a Catholicism within our heritage, right? Yeah, and we grew up Catholic, which means that we are no longer Catholic. Yes, this is true. <laughs> Uh, it, it, Jose, I, I gotta, I gotta know. So do you remember vividly your first time of seeing 1973's The Exorcist? So I saw it on TV as a kid and that was obviously the edited version. 
Um, and then eventually we rented it on uh, VHS. Remember those VHS tapes? And um, saw the uncut version, which was even more eye-opening and scary and out of control. <laughs> so is that, definitely is that the spider the spider part where she's crawling on the wall? So the spider part didn't come out until the the re-release of, of yeah. Freakin's director's okay. cut. Yeah, but even even on TV, that stuff was scary. Like they, for whatever reasons, the censors left a lot in on on network uh, television. Of course, not the f words and things like that. But but it was still scary. And then seeing the the rated R version freaked me out even more. And then delving into the history of it, you know, just. The fact that it was released around Christmas time, which is, I guess was a brilliant marketing idea, I suppose. It was, in a way, it was a little bit like Star Wars. There were lines around the block for people to see it. There were stories of people fainting. I mean, all it's missing is, you know, a story of, like, say, a William Castle-esque sinus release if you have a heart attack. There, right? there were, which That occurred so priests priest and the church and everybody else were boycotting this film. So there, there were tons of, because uh, my dad vividly told me about his experience when he saw it in the theater. And when you went up to the theater, there would just be a bunch of priests and, and religious people you saying. Like, you weren't like 45 in this movie came out, Troy? No, no. Um, <laughs> but, he, but he was telling me like, hey, pe- people are out there boycotting this film and telling you if you go in, like the devil's going to come into you kind of thing. It was it was crazy. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I still kind of have that like Catholic guilt in me that when I watch The Exorcist, there's a part of me that thinks like, oh, because I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, I'm susceptible to demon possession yeah uh wow it's it's funny you say that so look there are tons of documentaries on the production of this film uh the the documentaries on the warner brother blu-ray discs are fantastic uh they go into the alleged curse on the on the film set where they had to bring in a priest to do an exorcism um (laughs) it, it talks about the priest standing outside the theaters boycotting the film the people passing out during the screenings, all the lawsuits that occurred as a result of this film. And, and of course the big thing is, is it was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. So it revolutionized horror film. Now my first watch of it and Jose, it sounds you and I may have seen it at the same time. CBS aired this in 1980. And I I remember CBS, uh, and I watched this film under a blanket with my parents. And it was one of those blankets that my mom had had quilted so you could kind of make holes in it to kind of peek through. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, the the segments that I was hiding from, but you could still hear from the television, were probably scarier than anything that I saw. Uh, just because your your brain, what little you did see, um, when, when you're eight years old and, and you're hiding from it, you still hear everything. I mean, your, your brain's in overdrive. Now that's not the worst of it. So as soon as the film is over, my dad goes, um, Hey, you, you knew that was a true story, right? And I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, but it didn't happen to a little girl. It actually happened to a little boy about your age. So being an eight year old <laughs> Catholic who was told that this was based on a true story, um, I had night terrors. Well, in, in exorcisms <laughs> in like Catholic mythology are a thing. It's not like it it's is. Made it's up. a real thing. And, and to this day, I will watch this thing under a blanket. It scares the bejesus. We, we talked last week and Jose, you were on. We're like, oh, do you believe in ghosts, et cetera? And I even made the comment like it depends on the day. Ghosts are something that <laughs> sometimes I, I really do think 
they're there. And then other times I'm like, oh, that's malarkey. For whatever reason, I fully believe demon possession is a 100% real thing, different than ghosts. Uh, and, and maybe it's that that Catholic guilt or something um, that I grew up with. But uh, I, I remember being in college and coming across um, the book that was written by one of the priests who participated in the original exorcism. And it was uh, more or less his diary. And same thing, didn't sleep for weeks after reading that thing in college. And and to this day, when I see this, this film, The Exorcist, I really struggle with sleeping. Um, and I will have all of the things like what's hiding underneath my bed, what's in the shadows I can't see. I mean, this this thing is, in my opinion, the scariest movie ever made. Well, for me, it's a combination. It's the Catholic guilt possession piece, but it also takes place in their home. And for most people, your home is the safest place you can retreat to. Mm -hmm. And so when something takes place in your home, and your home is where this thing is manifesting itself, that makes it even worse because you can't escape it. And so that for me is is the big thing. Like you, you take this, you take the exorcist out of their home and it's somewhere else. It's not as scary. But when it's in your house, you can't escape it. And it really starts to get to you because there's parts in my parents home when i was little i would not go to our unfinished part of our basement because i thought yeah that's pazuzu right there i know it for a fact <laughs> i agree i mean it's in the 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 first film is such a masterpiece of filmmaking as well because exorcism as a film trope or as a horror subgenre i find really goofy like i most exorcist films you're like that's just silly uh, there are a few good ones out there and, and when they hit, they hit, but I got to tell you that the, the, the stuff they do in that 1973 version, it goes back to a comment I think I made last week where you, it's rare to find a horror film that is really trying to take an adult approach to it and not gear it towards this like 18 to 29 demographic and, and really elevate the themes and treat it with a lot of seriousness and uh, there's some weight behind it. And The Exorcist, I think, is the pinnacle of that. Now, if somebody were to come up and go, ah, The Exorcist is so dumb, it's boring, blah, blah, blah. I get that uh, from their perspective. But I don't think this, – this is one of those franchises that in order to enjoy it, you – and you guys can tell me if I'm crazy. I think you have to – you have to – buy into the themes it's tackling in order for the scares to work. You don't have to be Catholic. You just have to find the stuff that they're talking about interesting. I don't know what you yeah, guys think. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right about that. I think what's, you know, Brad hit it on the head. You know, it's, what's scary about the film is that, again, you know, you, it happens in the home. It happens to a young girl, right? If the, if the devil really does exist, right, and it can possess an eight-year-old girl, then no one's safe, right? And so that's... That, you know, even as a Catholic and and knowing the stories about, you know, Lucifer and the fallen angel and becoming the devil and the devil's influence and Adam and Eve and the snake and, the you know, all of that, even knowing all of that, the, the, the film is treated very, very seriously. It is very scary. Um, and I think the reason why maybe some people might think it's a little too slow in the beginning is because it's it's building up that terror because you're with the mother in 
it, 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 every step of the way, right? Like yeah. what's happening, the incredulity when the doctor is like, oh, the bed could not have been shaking. She was having a tremor. And she's like, no, the bed was shaking. Um, and then she's in that room and she's frustrated and she's screaming. She's like, I've got 12 of the best doctors in the room and you're telling me now I need an exorcism. And then just her desperation when she meets the priest and it's all this great setup for you know the final exorcism which is just it's an it's an eye-opener it's like it's like walking into a haunted house and 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 seeing something forbidden almost like you're not supposed to be in that room and it, yeah it, it's a magical piece of filmmaking very scary very, and uh even to this day you're right i this movie and event horizon without fail if i if i watch those films i will have nightmares it, it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah uh so when we talk about Dominion, usually when we do our, I guess, outline, we get into how the movie did, et cetera. I, I don't know about you guys. I almost feel we should flip the script a little bit and start with production and development on this thing. It's by we... far the most interesting piece of these films. Okay. Yeah, kind of unprecedented in, unprecedented in movie history. Yes, I agree. And and jump in, guys, uh, with thoughts, everything else as I, as I go through this. So prior to... Dominion, there had been two Exorcist sequels, Exorcist to the Heretic, which critically it, cuckoo bananas. That movie is just bonkers. Box office hit, swings for the fences, swings for the fences. <laughs> Maybe we'll share some thoughts on that one. Um, and then we have Exorcist three, which is based on um, Legion, which was kind of a follow up book to the Exorcist. Uh, and, and then we get a prequel. So producer James G. Robinson started development on an untitled prequel to The Exorcist around 1997. In October of 99, Morgan Creek Productions hired Tom McLaughlin, director of Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, to helm the film. With the script finally in place, production was slated to occur the following spring in Africa. McLaughlin departed due to issues with the script. So he didn't like the script. He said, I'm out. In October 2001, numerous publications reported that John Frankenheimer was on board as a director with a new screenplay revised by Caleb Carr. Liam Neeson, at this point, was attached to portray the character of Father Lancaster Marin. William Peter. And Satan was going to be played by a black person, so Liam Neeson was perfect. Oh, perfect. Yes. True. <laughs> <laughs> William Peter Blady. Got him. Got him, Liam. Got him. <laughs> <laughs> William Peter Blady, so for those who don't know, wrote the uh, original book, The Exorcist, was not expected to take part in the production. And after July 2000 release date was, uh, 2003 release date was slotted, Frankenheimer was forced to step down from the project due to his declining health and was replaced by Paul Schrader. And shortly after, um, Frankenheimer actually uh, passed away. Mm -hmm. So Stellan Skarsgård and Billy Crawford were added to the cast, and Stellan Skarsgård eventually replaced Liam Neeson. Okay, so all of our principal cast members are in place, and uh, you know we have our director, right? So principal... Uh, I, I was just going to say that, yeah. um, unfortunately, Frankenheimer... So. Frankenheimer, he's the director of the Manchurian Candidate, mm -hmm. has a very, very storied like sort of resume. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, he had spinal surgery and then died of a stroke from complications from that surgery. But he had at that point already assembled a DP, the writers that you just talked about, yep. and then Neeson. According to Schrader in a book called 
Schrader on Schrader, surprise, um, Neeson got cold feet because the character of Marin is probably a little too passive and Neeson is used to obviously more, more action or, you know, uh, acting outwardly versus introspectively. Mm-hmm. And I, and he believes that that coupled with the failure of K-19, the Widowmaker, directed by Catherine Bigelow. Yay, Catherine Bigelow. Um, he was like, I can't do this. And he quit and went and made some comedy movie. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Uh, All right. Yeah, so that that makes perfect sense, quite honestly. Uh, and to be, to be totally fair, I, I really could see Liam Neeson in this role, but we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, principal photography on Schrader's film began on November 11, 2002 in Morocco. Was it Love Actually? Did he make Love Actually? Is that the movie you're talking about? Ooh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Does okay. it follow K-19? That was in 2003, <laughs> I believe. So could be. Time frame mm-hmm. makes okay. sense. Um, the crew spent six weeks filming in Morocco and then a further two months in Rome. By the time filming had wrapped in February 2003, six writers had contributed to the screenplay and the budget had nearly doubled. And, and Brad, you'll get into the budget numbers here in a minute. That's where, this is where it gets crazy. All right. So an early cut of Schrader's film that ran 130 minutes was shown to the studio in early 2003. The cut was widely derided due to a lack of scares and gore. The studio at first opted to re-edit the film, making it scarier, which Schrader opposed. Which, if you know Schrader, mm-hmm. this is pretty much his M.O. as a director. Additional photography was then planned, which, according to Schrader, only grew bigger and bigger as time went on. Schrader attested that he faithfully adapted Carr's screenplay on screen and that the studio went through, quote unquote, buyer's remorse during the production. Later reports indicated that Schrader was first given the option to re-edit the film twice, with neither cut managing to satisfy the studio. Sheldon Kahn was brought in to recut the film without Schrader's involvement. Schrader was livid and reportedly demanded that Khan leave. By then, the studio met with other filmmakers to direct new scenes to make the film scarier. Eventually, the studio opted to fire Schrader and scrapped the film entirely in August 2003. Morgan Creek decided to find a new director. That's crazy. So yeah. they, spent a, they spent millions on this thing. Couldn't get the edit. Schrader was a very difficult director. So they said, fine, We've, we're going to fire you. We're going to redo this. <laughs> Who do they find? Rennie Harlan. Well, I had read so <laughs> an interview that Rennie was brought on to kind of to do reshoots and, and re-edit the film initially. And that grew into be a bigger production. So he wasn't, I guess, brought on initially to make a new movie. He was brought on to fix the dominion i think that sounds that turned into yeah actually we're just gonna i want to make a whole different movie yeah because the the way the story goes is that um they met with harlan and to your point brad it started as a rewrite of the script it was like eight weeks and then that just turned into well or no it turned into like reshoots of like a few days and then it was like no we're just gonna do eight weeks and reshoot the whole damn thing Pretty much because what's crazy is they hired new actors except for one or two, mm-hmm. uh, added a bunch more action, and the studio was really impressed with the direction that Harlan was going to go. So they they just said, "Fine, here's a new budget. You pretty much reshoot the film." Okay, were and they impressed? Was Rennie Harlan really impressive? He was really <laughs> impressive. I'm, so I'm kidding. I I love 
he's definitely a workhorse, but more more to more to Brad's point, he was brought in and the decision was made incredibly quickly. And mm-hmm. so production started October 2013. They had 10 months to not only write, shoot, edit, post, and then release it. Yeah. Um, also, the misconception is that there was that Stellan was really the only actor that was there. There are f- about four or five that that are yes. holdovers between yeah. the movies. Yeah. Um, but yeah, go on. <laughs> no, no, no. You're absolutely right. So it, it wasn't that Stellan. I mean, they they kept some of the cast, but the let let's let's say that some of the other major players within the story were replaced. Right. Yeah. The big leads. The big leads. Yep. So Exorcist: The Beginning opens on August twentieth, two thousand four and underperformed at the box office and was critically panned. I think that's putting it nicely. I think critics took a dump all over this one. It's a 10%. Yeah. So keep in mind. vomited pea soup soup all over it. And and keep in mind at this point, um, and I think you're going to talk about this, Schrader's film cost $35 million, and the the studio turned around and spent another $50 million on Rennie Harlan. And so you got a new version that took in about $78 million. So Brad's going to talk in more detail how it performed against that. Schrader admitted to seeing the film on opening weekend with William Peter Blady and told The Independent, quote, this is really bad. If it stays this bad, I bet there's a chance I can get mine resurrected. Blady called it, um, quote, the most humiliating professional experience of my life, blaming not Rennie Harlan, but Morgan Creek. Okay. I know you don't get last names correct, but I believe it's Blatty. Blatty, okay. Yes. Blatty, Blatty. Yeah, I was Got gonna, it. I was gonna say. Go ahead, it's, dude. It's fine. If he doesn't get okay. last hundred and twenty ep, or I don't know what episode. One twenty-two. Yeah, if you're at one twenty-two, you know how terrible I am at names. <laughs> so it's just, it's part of the shtick, folks. And it's tomato, not even tomato. It, yeah. it's all good. By the way, there is a rumor that um, Schrader and it's it's either William Friedkin or Blatty. They were asked to leave an official screening because they were laughing. <laughs> well, I, that, I so believe there's it. A, there's a rumor that they screened the it. film. He laughed and they asked, they were laughing out uproariously and they were asked to leave. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. So after this thing tanks, Warner brothers entertainment starts to consider, um, releasing Schrader's film. Originally what they had planned to do was to release it as a direct to video. So at the beginning of the year, back in April, they said, Hey, we'll probably put this as an extra, or maybe we'll put it out there. Uh, but since Exorcist Beginning comes out in August and, and it just tanks, they they start discussions about a month later. So in September 2004, Morgan Creek approaches Schrader on possibly giving the film a limited theatrical run in 2005. Well, also, this is early internet days, and I believe the horror fans kind of Schneider cut this thing into being a thing. Yes. Bingo. Yeah. I was just about to say, while it's unprecedented that a studio would scrap a film entirely and start <laughs> all the way over, it's not unprecedented that they would then give money for a director to finish a cut because Snyder just did it yeah. with Justice League. It wasn't forty million, but you know, it yes. was so yeah. <laughs> keep that keep that in perspective. Snyder cut got millions of dollars. Um because <laughs> it's it's a comic well, book property. Superheroes. Right? Superheroes, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. The studio pretty much gave uh, Schrader $35,000 and a sh- very, very <laughs> short amount of time for him to finish his version. And I think he worked with Tom Solano uh, to, mm-hmm. to basically assemble it. So that is the history 
of the movie we're going to talk about tonight, Dominion. And uh, again, it's it's absolutely. And they come out seven months apart. Um, Dominion is way limited comparatively, but seven months apart. Seven months apart. Yes. So, Brad, let's go back to when Dominion was released and let's talk about how it did. Yeah. So you mentioned it. Budget is roughly somewhere between 30 to 35 million dollars. Released May 20th, 2005. Um, it is released in 110 screens and it makes 251K. K. Wow. Which wow. Is thousands. Um, Yikes. It's opening weekend. It uh, grosses $140,000. That's good enough for 23rd place of that weekend, which, hey, again, it's not really, not really fair because. <laughs> The, the number one film, Star Wars 3, Revenge of the Sith, um, opens in 3,661 screens to have a comparative number there. Um, you know, most of these movies are on thousands of screens. Some of them are, you know, somewhere between 500 and 1,000. But, yeah, so it's not really fair. And they did, I believe this was, um, you could buy this day and date as it was in the theater as well. So, you kind of have to look at this as a pair because they spent $90 million on the set and they made roughly close to $80 million. So um, between the two films beginning, beginning makes 76 or $78 million um, total. So it does, it's way more successful than, than dominion. But again, it was released um, in, what was it? Ah. Uh, August and then you know was actually wide released so not really didn't fair to compare the two didn't it break even basically but well if you don't just production no okay. marketing or anything like that and then again yeah. um well so. it and it's kind of unfair because if you were to look at the beginning and say okay 50 million is for that one 35 million is for Schrader you could you could make the case that the beginning was a little bit more successful um, I, I don't know if you would call it a break-even portion. But they but it's hard because they used a lot of the sets for yes. both and the locations and all that stuff. So and there's even some shots that are that you know kind of co-mingle. So or good you know, word. You can you could definitely see like the A shot or the B shot. Like they use the A in this one and like the B in the other one. Yes. Um but yeah, so it's really not fair because I I look at these as almost one production cost wise. Um, and, and so, yeah, anyway, um, so 23rd, uh, ranked, uh, opening weekend. Now critically it sits at a 29% with the critics in the 25% with the audience, uh, Wait, which movie, uh, Dominion. Dominion, Dominion. Okay. Thank you. So we're kind of, I, I thought we were doing the beginning. <laughs> no, we're kind of off the beginning for now. So, okay. um, but, um, I have, the most treatise of treats for us guys. <laughs> Halloween has come early movie guide has oh given us more than one piece of candy. Oh boy. Guys, yes. It has to be a negative four. It's not a negative four. Oh. I, I was surprised. It was not. Wow. They lean a lot into, uh, God, the son of man, uh, you know, being, <sighs> The greatest I, thing of all time. Well, the is, savior. Is I mean, it in the, I'm yeah. just going to say, is it, is it in the positives? Did this it is one's... not in the positives. Oh, dang it's it. It's a negative two then. Two. It's a negative two. Oh, interesting. Okay. Interesting. 
Okay. <clears throat> oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> Strap in, fellas. Ooh. Very strong Christian and biblical worldview in a Roman Catholic setting, including standing for Christ to the death, comma, keeping faith in God, comma, encouraging the discouraged, comma, forgiving enemies, comma, asking God for for help in reverence, comma, casting out the devil, comma. This is all plus four. Uh, accepting salvation in Christ, comma, positive references to Jesus Christ, comma, Yay, God Jesus. the ultimate dominion over Satan, comma, with some <laughs> false uh, religious elements, including worshiping at pagan temples and statues of idols, comma, pagan elements of animal sacrifice to gods, and drinking blood in rituals, comma. Pagan worldviews. <laughs> uh, some references to occult witchcraft, comma. And rom- romantic, as in like Roman, uh, elements state that Christianity corrupts societies, comma, as well as communism, apparent among <gasps> tribe, not wanting to mingle with priests, semicolon. Two or three strong profanities, semicolon, very strong violence depicting Point blank shots to the in the head, massacres involving guns, people shot with arrows, woman gives birth, and baby born with baby born dead with maggots, infestation. Oh, Jesus God. <laughs> uh, uh, no uh, sexual content or references other than scene where woman gives birth, upper male nudity in temple basements, and priests repents and turns to God after giving giving after going on spiritual sabbatical. Priest uses violent behavior to solve one problem, but otherwise uses nonviolent behavior. Revenge, theft, lying, and use of patron saints and praying to dead saints may be offensive to some non-Catholics. I have a question on that last part. So, to non-Catholics, when when you pray to to saints, yeah, do other Christians find that offensive? <laughs> I that's the no first idea. time I've ever heard that. Uh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> also, know. let me just tell you that there's always, if any upper male nudity is going to happen in the church, it's going to be in the basement, y'all. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, especially the Catholic. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Um, yeah, so so movie guide minus two, which is kind of weird if you think about it, but I, I mean, I don't know. I'm with Troy. I feel like it should have been a positive because this thing is like God will save you through and through. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, or maybe. So I'm save that Jose, save that. I actually, now that I think about it, I, it does make sense. This is a minus two because I don't think it's saying that actually. But we'll. Well, yes, I. I we'll just get there. I just. Uh, yeah. No, you're right. But that's, yeah, that, that's good. That's good. Um, right. And and for full disclosure, for anybody, because I know we probably confused a lot of people talking about production and development, and we're commingling Dominion with Exodus the beginning. Our conversation from here on out is is just focused on Dominion. Um, we'll share our thoughts because I know all three of us watched Exodus the beginning, but. For the bulk of our conversation, um, I was hoping we would talk about Schrader's film uh, for a very specific reason because I, I think it's I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure, most definitely. But, but um, what okay, else, Brad? so film yeah. films you could have seen May two thousand five. We've got House of Wax, 
Kingdom of Heaven. Lovely. Danny the Dog. Oh, the Jet Li film? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kicking AKA and Unleashed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, kicking and Screaming, Monster-in-Law, <laughs> Ooh. Uh, and the big one, fellas. I was there day one, May 19th, 2005, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, on its way to $848 million. Um, <laughs> Juggernaut. I was at Monster-in-Law. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was at Star Wars not and I went j- to see Jet Li. So not 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 that's not a joke for Jose. Uh, the Longest He's Yard, not. Madagascar are the films rounding out May. Wow! So there you go. Longest Yard wasn't that bad. The original was great. I never saw the remake. It, the remake wasn't that bad. Okay. I, I actually, it works as a companion film to the original. It can't touch the original, but it's actually a great update. I liked it. Okay, I liked it. Well, Jose, we're going to kick it over to you because uh, you are a walking encyclopedia of all film knowledge. <laughs> and there is no way, there's just no way I'm going <laughs> to tackle um, uh, anybody working behind the camera on any film when you're on the show. Uh, I'm, I'm nervous about talking about the cast, but this one I think I can handle. But I'm kicking it over to you. Why don't you tell us uh, about the people who made this film? Because I'm, I'm really curious about some folks' uh, opinion on the director specifically. Okay, so we'll save the director for last because he's definitely kind of a hero of mine. So let's start with let's start with the producer James G. Robinson, not related to Edward G. Robinson, the actor. Um, Jim Robinson uh, is one of the co-founders of Morgan, uh, Morgan Creek Studios. He's actually a Baltimore native. Yay, Baltimore! Um, and again, he started it with Joe Roth, who is the son of famed. Do you think he knows John Waters? Probably. You know that John Waters is from Baltimore? Yep. Okay. I didn't know. Did you know that, Brad? I didn't know if you knew that or not. Okay. No, Jose Jose, didn't know. No, no. Time out. Time out. When you said, I didn't know that John John Waters was gay, I about lost my mind. Uh, 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 There was, someone was ready to throw me a parade for being the only one, apparently. (laughs) Okay. I just thought he was this eccentric and asexual. What can I say? okay, Okay. Like, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> okay. So Joe Roth, he is the son, son-in-law of famed producer, Samuel Zarkoff. He's a former chairman of, um, Fox Disney studios, uh, Sony pictures founded his own studio, Roth pictures. So he founded Morgan Creek with, uh, Joe, Jim Robinson, James Robinson, uh, Robinson arguably introduced the world to Alicia Silverstone after he cast her in the crush, which is one of the movies that Morgan Creek has produced. Um, his son actually works at the company as well. Uh, some of the movies Morgan Creek has done have been things like Nightbreed, The In Crowd, American Outlaws. Um, the name of the company actually comes from uh, Joe Roth was a Preston Sturges fan. So it comes from the movie title Miracle at Morgan Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, Robinson has been an EP on Young Guns. Nightbreed, Exorcist 3, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Last of the Mohicans, the Exorcist television series. He also produced The Crush, as I just mentioned, Ace Ventura, Two If By Sea, the remake of Diabolique, which I love. Whoever, I will defend that movie. I absolutely loved it. Um, Bad Moon, Soldier, Georgia Rule, Dream House, All Eyes on Me. Um, upcoming from Morgan Creek, by the way, is they are helping to produce the Bloom House Exorcist sequel. So we have another Exorcist coming. There is also a Dead Ring. David Gordon Green, film. right? Yes. As soon as he's done with 
Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. Halloween. Go as soon as Halloween franchise. ends, see what I did <laughs> yes. there. It's on to. It's on to Exorcist. Um, and there's he's also behind the, the Nightbreed television <laughs> series. I, I wish, and the Dead Ringers television show based on the Cronenberg um, mm-hmm. uh, movie. Uh, segueing to, we mentioned the editor already, Tim Salano. He has worked with um, Schrader on his films, Dying of the Light, The Canyons. He's also been uh, an assistant editor on films like Apollo 13, Mrs. Doubtfire, Home Alone. Um, going briefly to music. So there are actually three credits here for music. Trevor Rabin, he is the composer of the score for Exorcist the Beginning. And in a pinch... They used some of his music because, again, he was only given pennies to sort of like finish the movie. Um, Additionally, uh, uh, New York-born Italian composer Angelo Badlamenti. People probably know him as scoring a lot of the David Lynch films, the Twin Peaks television series. He actually uh, wrote the music that opens for Inside the Actor's Studio, uh, which is sort of a fun trivia note. Um, he also scored Elm, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, but he has worked with Schrader on Comfort of Strangers and Autofocus, and he actually created themes for the movie, like a short 15 to 20 minutes that was, that's repeated in the film, and he actually did it for free. Schrader in the commentary is like, he did it for me for free. And an- another group that did it for free is some outfit called, I'd never heard of them, Dog Fashion Disco which his son apparently was a big fan of. And they were like, we will do anything for you. Apparently Schrader helped to secure them a record contract. And so indebted to him, they did the music, the rock music that heard, that's heard at the end credits, mm-hmm. as well as some of the last third of the film that they scored. Um, and by the way, Trevor Rabin uh, not only has scored films like Con Air, Gone in 60 Seconds, National Treasure, Snakes on a Plane, The Guardian, but he also was a member of the reformed Yes group and is the lyricist for Owner of the Lonely Heart. Oh, nice. So he, well, that's a yeah, deep cut of he, trivia. He, uh, he's a South African musician, and uh, he basically was with Yes for quite some time. Uh, the first album was the 90125, and then he actually toured with them. Uh, we also have a production designer, John Grazmark. Um, this is kind of going to go back into whether or not the film is the Exorcist film. These two are actually cursed. So I don't know if you know this, but Rennie Harlan was actually hit by a car during Christmas hiatus on um, Exorcist at the beginning. And he filmed the rest of it on crutches and had to be like, you know, wheeled around and stuff like that. Um, the reason why I'm saying cursed is because, as you know, John Frankenheimer didn't even get to direct it. He unfortunately passed away. And then John Grazmark, who's the production designer, got really, really sick at the end of the production and kind of couldn't finish his duties. Uh, but he has uh, worked his way up as a droughtsman and a carpenter, worked on 50s and 60s films, including 2001. He's an art director for the Flash Gordon, Dino De Laurentiis version, Firefox Man with a Golden Gun. He was a production designer on Ragtime. Robin Hood, Blown Away, Life Force, The Bounty, Superman 4, Quest for Peace. Got to give it up. Good production design, even if it's not a great movie. Uh, (laughs) Gorillas in the Mist and Courage Under Fire. Uh, Let's segue to our writers, William Wisher. So William Wisher wrote the pioneering sci-fi work, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. He worked on the first film as a script doctor. 
and also worked the less pioneering sci-fi films. Judge Dredd, he wrote that. And then The 13th Warrior, adapted from the Michael Crichton novel. Which Jordan um, and I have done. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and, and we both really like that film. So go back and listen to that Absolutely. episode. Watch the movie. Absolutely. Um, he, uh, ooh, uh, Caleb, uh, Caleb Carr. So he's an interesting guy too. So he is noted as the, the, um, he is noted as the, uh, script rewriter. And according to some sources, some say that he basically only did a one page rewrite of Wisher's script that he added in all these other beats and stuff. But if you hear Schrader talk about it in other people, it, it really does look like he did a substantial overhaul of the script itself. The reason why Carr is so interesting is he's been a professor of military history at Bard College in New York. With James Chase, he's actually written um, a couple books on national security and foreign policy, which is bizarre. Oh, wow. um, he worked as a producer and a screenwriter in the 80s and 90s, probably most known for a a TV movie called Warlord Battle for the Galaxy, which was slightly successful in his words. He was also a script doctor in Morgan Creek's In Crowd and Chill Factor, which is probably why Robinson handpicked him to try to redo the script itself. Um, curiously enough, also, he comes from good stock. His father is Lucian Carr, who is one of the um, credited Beat Generation writers. So his, his close friends were William Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg. Oh, um, and he is an esteemed novelist. He's written the Alienist series, which was then turned into a TNT television show. A lot of his, a lot of Carr's works tend to deal with violence and uh, it being perpetrated by men who have had childhood trauma. And then he sort of like got into serial killers, which is where the Alienist came from. He's also been on documentaries for like the New York Underground and Jack the Ripper. So very interesting character. Those two are credited with with writing this story. And I think they are also credited on the exorcist, at the beginning, but there is another scriptwriter, Alexi Hawley, who, who worked with Rennie Harlan, as well as skip woods, skip woods wrote, uh, the Hitman, the first one, which is not that great. <laughs> um, uh, but Alexi Hawley, just to briefly go into him, I always thought that anytime he came onto a television series, it meant the death knell because he would always swoop in and be the showrunner for the last couple seasons for a show. And then the show would be canceled. So witness his work with castle and then it got canceled. And then he also did a couple other shows as well. His brother is Noah Holly who did Legion on FX. Um, all right. So we got two last people. We're, one last person. We're getting to the director, the DP, the cinematography here is one Vittorio Storero, who is a legend of cinematography. I mean, he's up there with names like Gordon Willis, Vilmos Sigmund. Like, he is a legend, Italian born and trained. Um, I'm going to read this quote because I think it's, fan it's fantastic. Storero says, All great films are a resolution of a conflict between darkness and light. There's no single right way to express yourself. There are infinite possibilities for the use of light with shadows and colors. The decision you make about composition, movement, and the countless combinations of these and other variables is what makes cinema art. The cinema never has the reality of a painting or a photograph because you make the decisions about what the audience should see, hear, and how it's presented. It is our obligation as filmmakers to defend the audience's rights to see the images and to hear the sounds the way we have expressed ourselves as artists. Wow. Um, 
So he has benefited not only from very fruitful relationships with key actor, uh, key directors, sorry, Francis Ford Coppola. So he shot um, Apocalypse Now. Uh, Coppola famously gave won an Storaro, Academy Award for it. Mm-hmm. He won an Academy Award. Uh, Coppola famously gave Storaro free reign to design the entire visual look of the film. Um, he also worked on Coppola's One from the Heart. He has worked extensively with Bernardo Bertolucci. He was a camera assistant on Before the Revolution. He was a DP for Bertolucci's third film, Spider's Stratagem, and then worked on The Conformist, 1900 or Novociento, as it's called, Last Tango in Paris, Luna, The Sheltering Sky, Little Buddha, and won an Oscar for The Last Emperor. And Reigns. Um, He's got three. Well, and Beatty's then race. so the other fruitful relationship is with Warren Beatty. Sorry, I stepped on And <laughs> he won an Oscar for Beatty's Reds. Red, sorry, uh, Reds uh, also shot Bullworth for him. And I remember him for his amazing photography for Dick Tracy. Yes. The way that Storaro shot that film with the colors and, the, and everything, just absolutely beautiful. Other weird notes, he shot the Captain EO 3D film at Disney World with Michael Jackson, which is so bizarre in his resume. Um, but he also cut his teeth on Br- uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage that's under his belt for cinematography. And Did you, then- did you hear that, Brad? Argento? I heard it. I heard it. Okay, just make sure. That was an Argento. Well, reference. he's also got another one on his list, Troy. We'll get to that in a second. Well, I was going to say he shot Ishtar, which yes. was... Uh, the subject of one of your episodes as well. Um, And then just to let you know, he's also embraced digital technology using Sony F65s on Woody Allen's Cafe Society. And he actually created his own film system. Uh, So film usually has four perforations to to run the film through. He created um, the Univision film system, which uses three perf or three perforations. And it's at a 2-1 and he was trying to establish that aspect ratio as a universal for both digital and theatrical um, works and used it first on the sci-fi miniseries Dune, which is actually a really great miniseries if if nobody's ever checked that out. Very, very faithful to the novel. And that brings us to our director, Paul Schrader, very controversial uh, American screenwriter, Probably known because he's linked to the quote-unquote movie brat generation. So Schrader, Spielberg, Scorsese, Coppola, George Lucas, Brian De Palma, they all kind of ran in the same circles and were often hanging out. They were often helping each other. I think I think uh, Spielberg might have even been on the set of like Scarface helping De Palma like blow around cocaine and fire things off in the background or what have you. So he he sort of came up through that friend group in some ways. Um, interesting character. He grew up in a very strict Calvinist background, so very, very religious, couldn't go on dates. The first time he ever saw a movie was actually when he went to college, okay? And then he discovered filmmakers like Robert Breeson and Yuzujiro Ozu and Carl Dreyer actually wrote a book, Transcendental Style in Film. Um, and then he started his screenwriting magic, uh, there, he started with a film called The Yakuza. Which if is amazing. Ever, oh if my you've dope, ever God. seen it, it is yeah. absolutely brilliant. It's a 1974 uh, Yakuza gangster epic. Um, I think it's Pollock. streaming on HBO Max. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, Robert it's, Mitchum. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah. Robert Mitchum. It's, it, the movie's brilliant. Um, but then <laughs> he would come to fame for writing Taxi Driver and would even coin from that script, you know, 
there's a line in there that says something about like God's lonely man. And it's almost, almost like God's lonely man is a genre onto itself. In fact, if you ever read anything with Paul Schrader, you will see that phrase, God's lonely man. And it drives me up the wall. I want people to stop using it, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, he went on to direct his own films, Blue Collar. If you've never seen it, it's actually a really good comedy drama about unions mm-hmm. in the 70s. Harvey Keitel's in it, Richard Pryor. Um, you should hear the commentary, too. Apparently, they all did not get along and hated each other. And it was just like Schrader talks about how it was a nightmare to shoot that movie because they all hate each other and didn't want to sit next to each other, which is really weird. Um, Schrader also wrote and directed Hardcore which is a really rough George watch with um, yep. George C. Scott. American Gigolo, which has now been turned into a television show. One of his first studio movies was Cat People, the notorious erotic softcore horror film with Nastasia Kinski and Roddy McDowell. He wrote the screenplay for Raging Bull, again, having that relationship with uh, Marty, Marty, Martin Scorsese. He also wrote The Last Temptation of Christ as well. Um, the Mosquito Coast, Light of Day with Joan Jett and Michael J. Fox, Affliction with Nick Nolte, um, and the list goes on. I mean, hit, you know, I did this thing when you told me I was going to be on the show eventually talking about Schrader. I actually went through and watched practically all of his movies, and he seems to really mine into characters that are on the edge of their morality mm-hmm. and they're desperate and something happens to them, whether they're Did you watch changes. first reformed. Yes. I How love good that. Is that movie. Yeah. It's uh that's a, that destroyed me as mm-hmm. well. Affliction destroyed me. That was, that's another rough watch. It's about like alcoholism and stuff with Nick Nolte light sleeper, but he, he does these movies. Did about, you watch the canyons again? Just for fun. <laughs> I've seen the canyons a million times because I Jose love Jose loves Lindsay that Lohan. film. Yeah. I love Lindsay Lohan. Um, and he handpicked her by the way, he saw something in her and he really brought out a performance. I want to pitch that movie because I don't think a lot of people saw it and it is kind of skeezy and dirty. You might need to shower after you watch it, but Lindsay is really, really good in it. And that's just a testament to Schrader and his ability to pull things out. But uh, pull things They're pulling out things out in that movie for sure. <laughs> well, yes, James Dean did in fact pull things out uh, in that movie. But <laughs> um, and then of course, Mishima: A Life in Four Chapters is the movie that he did. Um, uh, Will Will from the Gentleman's Guide says that arguably that's Schrader's best film. It's a fictionalized account of the life of celebrated Japanese writer Yukio Mishima. Um, I have not seen that, believe it or not. I have, it's really, I have seen all the other ones. I don't think it's his best, but man, it, it, it's so good. It's so interesting. It really, it really is a must watch. If you haven't seen it. I might have to add that to the list then. And, and, but Schrader, Schrader's very controversial. He has a, he, there's a Twitter site devoted to his Facebook posts because he's gotten in a lot of trouble with some of the things that he said. Um, he's very old school. He's on PC. He's going to tell it like it is. But, you know, anytime you get a chance to hear a commentary or hear him speak, YouTube is rife with a lot of his lectures. Do it. The man is a walking brain. He's very cerebral, very interesting character. Love I, that guy. I personally like him better as a writer than a director. And I think if you hire him to direct and you don't let him be the writer, it's it's weird. I, I think that's a weird decision for this film is you bring in Paul Schrader and you don't let him write. Well, what's what what's interesting, Brad, and I think you you hit it on the head as well. 
I think that Schrader, especially with his history, brings a cachet. And if you're going to bring him onto a movie, you're going to need to understand how he works Mm -hmm. and what he does. So, Troy, when you were saying that he came out and said, hey, I just directed the script, I I think there's you'll find that Schrader sometimes tells half truths and then later he'll tell you what the real skinny is. But I I think there's a little half truth in that. I think that Schrader was he had very very set designs on what he wanted to do with this movie. And even when it was clear that the studio didn't like what his approach was, he was not going to change. Well, let's, let's be honest <laughs> so. here. Even when Schrader is directing something that's not his script, he's turning it into his. Uh, Schrader definitely Absolutely. has a fingerprint. And I, I think you smartly kind of danced around some of the controversy. He's one of those directors, and and this is always hard to do, I know, for for some people, if you look at his comments and you try to judge him as a as a person outside of his work and you bring that into judging his work, okay, you you might find it prob you might find it a problematic viewing. Like he's one of those guys that I've always found you got to divorce him from the writing and the directing gig. Now, yep. his writing and direction and everything that he brings to the table, I've always now I haven't seen his entire filmography. But he's one of those that as soon as I know he's uh, involved in something, I'm, I'm immediately interested in it. And I, I just watched The Card Player the other night and really enjoyed yeah. it. So I, I think he... Counter. Card the Card Counter. counter. Or Card Counter, yeah. 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 Sorry, Card Player was That was, was one of my favorite Argento films of 2021. Film. It yeah. was fantastic. His um, films are just so character-driven and intense. He has a new one coming out, Master Gardener with Sigourney Weaver and Joel Edgerton. Yeah, and I, I think I think that's the right thing. Schrader is more fascinated with the conflicts of a character and the character study probably more than anything else um, in his movies. And yeah. if you know he, that going into it, I think his I think you can really enjoy his films. But you have to understand. When when you go to a Schrader film, you're you're getting a Schrader film. I mean, it's through and through. It, it's Paul Schrader film. Yeah, he is. He has admitted that he has a constant fascination with people who say one thing but do another to the disservice of what they are allegedly trying to pursue. Yeah. Right. So you know, if if somebody's like, you know. I'm not going to drink because I want to be happy, but then all I do is drink. Like th- to him, that's that's like creative gold. He is great at writing broken characters, mm, really broken yeah. characters that are trying to find their way. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, he's a he's a master at it. Uh, let's talk about the people in front of the camera. There's not a lot to discuss because surprisingly, you've only got a few major players within this film. Now we're going to start with Stellan Skarsgård. He is is both in this film and the one we might talk about a little bit later, but he plays um, the main character, Father Lancaster Marin. Now Stellan's a Swedish actor. He's been in a lot of stuff. 152 acting credits. Oh yeah. I, I think probably his breakout role in Hollywood, the one that he started to get most notoriety, came when he was in Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves, which was in '86, and um, people. People will know him now because if you think about um, character actors within like things like the MCU or Pirates of Caribbean, Dune, Star Wars. I mean, he shows up in all those franchises, right? So he's in the Thor films. Um, he's he's bootstrap bootstrap Bill in the Pirates of the Caribbean. He he was in a few of those. Uh, I I just remember him from movies, you know, specifically in the '90s like Deep Blue Sea and Ronin. I think he's fantastic mm. in Ronin. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, he's he's, he's such amazing a, in Chernobyl. Yes. HBO miniseries. Mm. He's just he's he. Uh, let's let's just put it out there. I mean, um, Stellan, a list actor. Wouldn't you say in terms of the stuff that he touches? I mean, he he really brings a lot of quality to the roles, um, and he elevates a film just by being in it. And he's yeah, got he, a good uh, a good uh, family tree there too. Good stock. Yes, he's <laughs> yeah, the father stock. of of uh, Alex Skarsgård, Bill Skarsgård, who uh, Pennywise the Clown. He's been in Barbarian and then Gustav Skarsgård. Yeah, yeah. So there, his sons have gone into acting as well. Scooter knows him because he was in Mamma Mia, the oh, film. Oh yeah, so, that's right. Like mm. you know, you know, you've made it if Scooter recognizes. He's one of the. He's one of the actors that he will just pop up and stuff, and you don't expect him to. But then as soon as he's there, you're you're kind of interested yeah. about his character, and uh, I, he really embodies that. You know, I, I would that, that saying about there's no small part for any actor, right? He, he brings yeah. his A game to everything. Everybody um, else. Were, he is Swedish, just like Max von Sydow, who yep. play, originally played Lancaster Marin. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody else we're going to talk about outside of one, I, I don't think is an A-lister. And as a matter of fact, uh, I, I one of the faces that I saw, I'm like, oh, I know I know this person from from a film. Um, but everybody else, I'm like, don't know who these people are. Gabriel Mann or man as Father Francis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was in the Jason Bourne franchise. Mm-hmm. He seems to primarily work in a lot of television. His most recent work was in the Batwoman series, I think, for the CW. Yep. Uh, you've got Clara Beller as Rachel Lesno. Now, she's been in AI, artificial intelligence, everything else. I, she hasn't really acted a lot. Her her credits are pretty thin. You've she's got, French-Brazilian, by the way. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and then just just to go back to Gabriel Mann, I remember him from Revenge, which was on ABC. Um, that was sort of like the the dramatic female retelling of The Count of Monte Cristo. If you've never seen it, it's addictive. It's it's fantastic. The first season, um, Madeline Stowe was in it. Alex, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna take uh, television shows I'll never watch for four hundred. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> anyway, Gabriel's great in it. That's how I know him. Okay, go ahead. We got, uh, this one's interesting to me. Billy Crawford as Che Che, AKA, uh, what John Leguizamo would look like if he fell out of a tree and hit every branch on the way home. That's what he looks like. That's the first thing. Dude, he looks like John Leguizamo got with horse teeth. Yes. Um, he does have, yes. Billy is a look for him on the first Saturday in May. Yeah. That's a Kentucky Derby. thing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, Body shaming. Cool. Um, <laughs> hey, Justin isn't here either. So we want to make fun of him while he's not here. No, I just want to make fun. Of, I want to make fun of anybody not that looks boyfriend. like John Leguizamo. Um, he's a We're Filipino jealous, so. actor, musician, singer, dancer, comedian, and television host. And he's released like seven studio albums. Uh, he's, <laughs> I've looked at his film RV. I'm like, nope, haven't seen anything. Although there's one from 2013 called Momzilla's. I'm, yes. I'm interested to see the trailer for that, just to see what the heck that is. That and a thing called, um, I think it's called, the name is called, a thing called Tagnaga, which is, he, he speaks Tagalog. So, um, but anyway, yeah, he's huge over there. Schrader says that when they were filming in Morocco, French schoolgirls would like chase him around. Like they knew exactly who Billy Crawford was. And they were like stalking him. Makeup and all, huh? They knew him. No, not makeup and all. Okay. All right. That's, that's some makeup work. Um, yeah. Julian Wadham as Major Granville. I I just realized this, and this will give you a, a chance to do your accent here, uh, Brad. 
He was in a television show called Highlander, The Raven, in 1999. I guess it was a one-season thing. It would have been better with Christopher Lambert. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Uh, But he's a guy that pops up quite a bit as a British actor. He's been in War War Horse, The Iron Lady, Colette, which is really good. Uh, So when you see his face, you'll go, oh, yeah, that guy. That guy. (laughs) Now, this is the only other actor I knew because as soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh, that's Rick from The Phantom Menace. Episode one. So it's Ralph Brown. He's yes. been in. And I you also, know where else you know him from? I know him in Wayne's World 2 as Del yes. Preston. Mm-hmm. He was in Alien 3. Yeah, uh, there and, you go. And I just realized, as soon as I see, you know, you see Julian and all these other people, and you're like, nope, don't recognize them. But I see Ralph Brown, and all of a sudden I recognize that my brain is programmed to remember people in movies uh, like Star Wars, et cetera, versus more dramatic and serious films, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I have his action figure too because I have all the Phantom oh. Menace. So. Wow! Yeah. Wow! Well, uh, no, I remember him from uh, Alien Three. Then they call him like eighty-eight because that was like yeah. his IQ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I just but I remember Del Preston, Wayne's World Two. There you go. Yes. <laughs> the last one I'll just mention: um, Israel Adoramo as Jomo. Uh, he, yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean as Crippled Man. Not a lot of, uh, I, I don't know, roles have been given to him to stretch his acting chops. Mm. But I would say those are pretty much the main characters of the film with, I would say, almost every scene involving Stellan Skarsgård. I mean, he's he is the reason why you're watching this thing. Yep. Uh, Jose, anybody else to add to that we should pay attention? Well, I was just going to say that yeah, you mentioned Skarsgård, Julian Wadham, um, Israel, uh, Oyelamode, who plays jo- Jomo, uh, Ralph Brown. Um, and then there are two other actors, Andrew French, another British actor who plays Chuma. And then Eddie Osei, who plays Emekwi, who has the two kids. Mm-hmm. All of those actors that we just mentioned are also all in Exorcist, the beginning. Oh yeah. Good so point. a lot of times people are like only Stellan remained, but it's actually, no those actors i think it's like seven if i think i named seven people okay. um and sadly gabriel mann i am I'm, I'm surprised he did not survive the jump he was a handpicked by frankenheimer as well schrader kind of fell in love with them i mean he he's been on record as being like this movie has more pretty girl or pretty boys than pretty girls and he was like and gabriel was just so beautiful i wanted to have him like you know suffer like saint sebastian so that's why he's all strung up shirtless with like the arrows mm-hmm. and stuff like that but i was surprised he didn't make the jump and then they replaced him with james darcy who was kind of boring mm. in the other movie okay <laughs> whatever well anyway, we, yeah. we have spent a good hour talking about the exorcist <laughs> film the history yes. of this sucker uh like who made it having an interesting um discussion on how this sort of came to light. I am ready to go, and I've been waiting patiently to hear your guys' view on this. So how about we take a quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna dive right in to our thoughts on Dominion, the Exorcist prequel. How's that sound? Perfecto. Cool, all right, we'll be back. Time for refreshment, refreshment. For your enjoyment, there's hot, fresh popcorn. Tempting, delicious hot dogs. And so many kinds of ice cream. And of course, sparkling, delicious, ice-cold Coca-Cola for everybody at the refreshment counter now. 
remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous ice-cold Coca-Cola. Exorcism is only the beginning of Exorcism's Daughter. In Exorcism's Daughter, you actually see an exorcism. Then you witness the results. And when there's no place left to go, you can always go mad. Welcome to the house of insane women. The only place left to go when you're Exorcism's Daughter. No matter where you've been before, you've never seen anything like Exorcism's Daughter. this street, in this house, a young child lies in terror. Her body is the battlefield. Her soul is the prize. Her one hope. Her only hope. The Exorcist. presents William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin. The Exorcist, rated R, under 17, not admitted without a parent. The Exorcist, the movie you've been waiting for, without the wait. Okay, let's let's get right into this, Brad. I want to start with you. So, it, it it is rare we watch a film, and I am not like have zero clue where you're going to end on this one. This is one of those movies. As soon as it was over, um, I just had no clue where you were going to land on this because we've been doing this show for a while, sharing our our critical thoughts on things, and we've known each other for forever. But there's still some movies you come across and you go, I don't know where this is going to land. And so I'm, I'm, I've been dying to hear your view on this. So I want to start with you and get your initial reaction and thoughts on this. And, and before we start, just real quick, was this a first time watch for anybody? It was not. Okay. No. All right. All right, Brad. I, I'm Just lay it on us. What did you <clears throat> think of this? So full disclosure, I watched this one after the beginning. And I think that might. Oh, good point. Um, yeah. I think that might um, sort of where I lane on this is in reference to that, because I think someone watched two people watched the exorcist and one took away all the violence and everything like that. And the other one took away all the character study and uh, we're getting the character study in this version. Um, And I am always going to be a sucker for some sort of Catholicism in movies Give me references to Catholicism. Give me talk of angels and demons and all that stuff. Cause it just, it, it, it kind of tickles my, it tickles that religious bone that's like hidden away somewhere, but okay. I still enjoy it. <laughs> that's a terrible way to put he it. He said religious bone. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I did not know where you're going with that. There's just, I'm like, okay, yeah. tickles what? But, <laughs> but so I, I'm always kind of a sucker for that. So, when I go into this and, and it's it's kind of leaning into that stuff, obviously it's an exorcist movie. 
Um, I'm, I'm kind of on board anyway. And I think Stellan is spectacular in this movie. And I think if you don't think that you're going to be in trouble, they try to give a lot of reasons for his backstory. And it goes into like some world war two stuff. Um, that is pretty sort of horrific. Um, and, and, I'm not going to talk about them killing children because they're little, you know, it's, well, that's it's how the movie starts. I mean, it, this it's, is, a yeah, Paul, this one, it's a this Paul one Schrader opening. If you've ever this seen one doesn't one. bring me as much joy as other ones, because in the context, it's like, Oh, this is, this is rough. Yeah. Um, I, this one's tough for me because again, I, I like, I like the Catholicism stuff. I like anything with the conjuring, the last exorcism, all those movies that have, spirits and stuff like that in possession as their main sort of conflict i'm really into this one i struggle with because i as soon as you see Che Che, you're like okay that's that's who we're getting that's that's who is going to be possessed um so there's no sort of mystery um and then you compare that to the beginning and it's like okay well they did the mystery and it sucks so maybe that's not what we want to go for and this one I I was so excited to talk about this. And then when we started kind of when I started putting my thoughts together, I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this. I think I might need to like talk it out to finally <laughs> figure out how I feel because I watched it on Saturday after watching the beginning on Friday. And I'm still kind of wrestling with what I like and what I don't like. I do think it's a bit long. Um, I do like the church and 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 some of the uh, allusions to Lucifer and Satan and and all that. But at the end of the day, I'm like, I, I don't know if because this was early 2000s and we're we're trying to figure out what do we do with the Exorcist. Let's go back because you know three. Two and three were kind of a disaster. And I just don't know if we need this prequel, but they made it. And and, I, and prequels are starting to become a thing at this point now. Yeah, with they, franchises. Are, they are. We, you, we you already, to, yeah. we'd already gotten the, the, well, you know, same year, episode three, you know, the prequel mm-hmm. trilogy is over. I, I just, I struggle because it's got a lot of stuff that I like, but there's just a lot of things that I don't. And it's also hard for me to kind of review these movies separately because they kind of crisscross so much that I'm like, wait, the hyena thing. No, that was in this one, not in this one, but the hyenas are in this one, but not that uh, was the butterfly thing in this one. No, that's the other one. Um, so it, it's kind of hard, but I, again, I think I need to like have a conversation before I really figure out, how I ultimately feel about it because I'm so on the fence on everything because I, I just think it's, it's almost there, but like, I think the conclusion of this movie, like the, the conflict at the end is terrible. Like if you, if you compare it to the exorcist, like this whole thing falls apart because it's not going to stand up and, to that well, movie can, at all. Can we just say something real quick? Any sequel, I don't care what it is. You, you cannot compare any of the sequels to the original. It, the problem well, with The Exorcist is it's so good. It's it's so important. It, it's the one film that trying to do a sequel to, I, I think out of the gate, if you if you 
if you go, oh, I'm going to watch The Exorcist, and then I'm going to watch whatever sequel comes out after that, you're in trouble, in in my opinion. I mean, that, yeah, that's uh, just my that view. Is, that is true. I mean, yeah. Okay, I, I get that. Um, so I don't know. I guess my answer to you is I don't know right now. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's pivot over to you, Jose. Uh, I'm curious where you're going to land on this. So, what are what do you, what's your takeaway with Dominion? Uh, you know, like Brad, I. First of all, I could not resist the temptation if we're going to throw on that phrase, um, but I could not resist the temptation to watch Exorcist the beginning um, after I had seen this. So I kind of did it in re- reverse order. I watched Dominion and then I watched the Exorcist the beginning. And so you, when I started and, uh, real quick, so Brad watched it in the order they were released, but you watched it in the order that they were produced. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, but I fell into the same trap that that Brad fell into, which was like, wait, wait a minute. You know, when I was thinking about it after I had watched them, I was like, oh, okay, here comes the part where, you know, Wadham's going to, you know, kill himself and the, the butterflies are going to go all crazy. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's not the Schrader movie. Um, and it is it is hard to look at this film separately without thinking about that other, not only not thinking about the other movie, but then being curious and looking at the other movie and then trying to judge the two. But then you've also got the sort of second mind screw of how does this stack up to the, the exorcist itself and then the other films. And, you know, Schrader is on record as saying that he really needed to do something completely different and i i think uh, when i think of this movie it calls to mind um the the dreaded remake of point break which i seem to bring up a lot you've brought that up a few times (laughs) yeah but i i bring it up as a point to say ostensibly point break was made as a reboot remake of the the classic catherine bigelow Point Break with uh, Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. But so many people went into it like, okay, it's going to be the Point Break remake. It's got to be as good. And then the film is not that great. And it sort of disappointed viewers. And the reason why I I bring it up. If you get Kurt Bimmer to write your film, it's going to be shit, man. Hey, he wrote Salt. I love Salt. Okay. Didn't he do the uh, Christian Bale Equilibrium? Equilibrium and Ultraviolet. Ultraviolet. Which I love. I love that movie. Anyway, of course I love that movie. Uh-oh. See, Brad, Brad's got an aneurysm. <laughs> listeners, you you are you you aren't able to see this, but Brad's having a meltdown and yeah. he's like fainting. I can't. Um, <laughs> that's the worst movie. Uh, what are you talking about? That's the worst movie I've ever seen in my it's, goddamn life. It's just fun to watch. Mm. I love it. I, it's fun to watch. But but um, I, I bring up Point Break because if that movie was not a Point Break remake it's actually not bad. Right. And when I look at this film, there's part of me that thinks that if it didn't have the exorcist moniker or the title or the franchise attached to it. So if they just call it dominion, if they just call the dominion, I think that it stands up on its own. I mean, it's obviously not when we also look at this movie versus exorcist, the beginning, Brad, like you said, it's like, they came to Schrader and they said, give us a vision, give us something new. Right. But it wasn't like 
the scares of the exorcist it wasn't like the bonkersness of the exorcist 2 it wasn't like the atmosphere of exorcist 3 and then rennie harlan does exactly what everybody is expecting there is you know a woman who is possessed there's a exorcism at the end she's you know running up the walls and her head spinning actually i don't think her head spins but that was the hollywood exorcist it was the completely expected version of what you would think an exorcist sequel would look like um and so i think that when people pop in dominion a prequel to the exorcist and i think it was specifically titled that way to separate it from the exorcist series which you you just can't because like troy said the exorcist is such an important thing but this one is definitely more cerebral it's not a haunted house it's not a possession sort of thing um it's it's dealing with really really lofty themes that i just don't think people want to see when they come to a horror movie i think that that that's changing so we have horror films that sort of invest in the psychology aspect of things um and if they work on character and then bring you the horror like Silence of the Lambs, that seems to work versus, say, Smile, which is out now, which has some character development, but it goes for the sort of like cheap jump scares. Um, we can talk about Smile some other time. But, yeah. But, uh, well, can can we say... This is closer to Hereditary than it is The, the Exorcist. Or I was going to say Midsommar. Yeah, Midsommar, yes. or, or Yeah, or Midsommar, definitely. I mean, it's... Uh, like I said, it's, it's just dealing with very very lofty themes and i think what it was examining was how uh, people look to certain things and they want to characterize it as being quote-unquote evil or being influenced by the devil right and it's you know the the movie makes a point to say it's so much easier to believe that evil is just random but i think the thesis of this film comes between that conversation with claire uh the actress Claire uh, Ballard and Stellan Skarsgård, where she says that thing, you know, I think the best view of God is from hell, right? Um, obviously, that's a very extreme statement. But what what they were trying to say in that scene was that, you know, evil isn't random. It's generated by man, right? We might have been made in God's image, but, you know, there isn't just the devil or a demon out there. Maybe he is influencing things, which is a reason why I kind of like Constantine because the demons sort of influence humans. They don't actually get them to act, but they just influence. And then it's the humans who go crazy. This is that sort of same theme. And Lars von Trier ex explored it in Antichrist as well. When we talk about like the original sin, it's still all in us. And so we're you know, evil may actually be a part of the human condition. That's what the nurse said. Well, we see the evil is represented at the beginning with the the Nazis and then again with the British army and all that stuff. And it, it's Absolutely. just like a reoccurring thing in this movie. And each of the characters, if you look at them, they've been touched by evil, right? Mm -hmm. We all know the military does crazy stuff. Some of these military people are stealing. We know the 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 general is probably nefarious and has done crazy things, right? Um, the nurse was part of the Holocaust. Yeah, she's um, got her tattoo. She experienced evil. She's got the tattoo. Marin goes through his thing. Even um, even Gabriel Mann's character gets touched by evil because there's, the, there's that horrible incident where the children are killed, um, and then he's sort of like freaking out. And then he's you know there's 
a lot going on here, a lot of themes. And I think what sets this apart from the other movies is that whereas The Exorcist was just the possession of the one girl and they were trying to get the devil out of the girl, this one is more like when they discover the church, the infection kind of spreads and it influences the tribes people to go violent and fight the soldiers and the soldiers think, well, the evil isn't the church. It isn't us. It's got to be the, as they say, spear chuckers or the fuzzies, as they call them, um, which I found kind of offensive. I don't know where that even came from, the fuzzies. Um, and then obviously, you know, uh, Che Che, you know, he's disfigured. He's uh, rejected by society. He's an innocent, right? He didn't, we don't know how he got to be that way, but the implication is that he was born that way somehow, right? And so, of course, it brings up those questions, why would God have somebody born this way and have a life like that, right? Um, and then he heals, but then we find out it's not really from good. He's healing from evil because he's Lucifer, and there's a weird take on on Lucifer here as they say that Lucifer is like the the angel of light or something or like a perfect light. And so we get this different vision of of evil. He's glowing. You get a different like a version of possession. If, if you yeah. think, if you think about the original exorcist, it's it's that Pazuzu was tearing down Reagan's body and was trying to show us that, you know, we're just bits of flesh and we're very gross and you put these lacerations on us and look at, look at all the stuff that comes out. I mean, it, it's really meant to kind of go, wow, human beings are disgusting. And what Schrader does in this one is going, Oh, possession turns what has been a disfigured boy into a perfect creature. So he, he well, goes an entirely different direction with it. It's like right. God turned your, his back on this human being. And so just out of spite for God, I am not going to do that. Yes. It sort of plays into that too. And and let's, let's be well, honest. And, and, like the, the exorcism is not important in this film. It's just not. Nope. No, because yeah. I think, because I, again, I think the, you know, Marin believes that we can choose good or evil. Right. But when, when Pazuzu tempts him, and gives him the ability to sort of go back and replay the scenario that has sort of like sent him in his depression, challenged his faith. What we see is we see him thinking what like a lot of us do. Oh, I would have bashed the Nazi's head in and then I would have shot all these other people and gotten the gun and saved everybody. But the problem is, is it's still violence. It's still evil. It's still indicative of, you know, the devil and its influences and stuff like that. And so, you know, he, Marin then sees that even when you try to do good, evil may still be there, or you may do bad things to get to a good result. Or, well, we and that's or, is you, or, or the act of you doing good is out of selfishness so that you feel good, yeah. which is, exactly. which might be even worse. Right. Because it's going to be the detriment to some innocent. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I just I, I feel like if somebody's going to come to see an Exorcist sequel, they were expecting Harlan's haunted house sort of like doom and gloom scare like vision, Hollywood vision. And I don't think they want to have something like this that makes them think that makes them, you know, connect the dots visually because Schrader's using every trick in the book visually to connote these themes. Um so I, I don't know. I, I loved it. I thought it was 
uh, very cerebral and thought-provoking and different, even though it carried some of the same themes and narrative that goes through each one of the Exorcist films, right? So, two, yeah. Borman talked about the fact that, you know, uh, with the locusts, they said something like, Pazuzu was like, even if I brush you with my wings, I'm I'm in you. I, I'm, you know, I've I'm influencing you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then with three, that was really more about like there was a serial killer and how was that tied to evil? What is the nature of evil? You know, what is, uh, I think his name was Kin Kinsman. Um, I forget the character's name, George C. Scott's detective mm -hmm. character. Um, Kinderman, sorry. Kinderman is kind of like, why are we doing all of this? Why am I even just trying to solve mysteries and save people when we're all doomed? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, it's I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was really great and thought provoking, but I can also see why the studio was disappointed and they might have been like, you need to redo this. But like I said, if you hire Schrader, this is what you're going to get. This is Schrader. Yeah. Right. He's not a he's not a Friday the 13th horror guy. I, I think Brad nailed it. Uh, you. So here's why Freakin is such an amazing director. You, he will take a film like The Exorcist and you will get the scares. And if somebody wants to look at that movie and go, oh, it's about this priest who exercises this this girl and and it, it was horrific and it had all the horror elements, the jump scares and shock value, it's there. If if you walk into The Exorcist and go, this is a really deep philosophical film about a priest questioning his faith. And really, the story arc isn't about um, whether or not Pazuzu is exercised from the girl. It's more about what happens to Jason Miller's character at the end of the film. And, and does he find his faith again? That's what Freakin is so good at, is he gives yeah. you both of those views in the same film and why you can appreciate it as just a scary film with some crazy jump scares and gore effects and everything else. But you can also approach to it and go, wow, that's a that's an interesting um, take on a priest who is questioning their faith, loses their mother and, and goes through like loss and how how they are, how they feel themselves getting farther and farther from God. And how are they supposed to, you know, go up against the devil when when they don't even know if if they want to do it right, if they want to be a priest, et cetera. So it's got it's got both levels are there. And I, I think you're right. Like. Freakin contextualizes the movie by giving you that Iraq sequence, which yeah. I'm pretty sure like audiences now are going to be like, why are we in the desert? I want to see a possessed woman. But it's it's that larger contemplation about evil and its reach and its influences across generations. Right. So Marin dies. It's it's Jason Miller's you know, journey, but then it's all through that possession. So even Freakin was working in that bigger canvas. But it doesn't come off like that the way that this sort of does. This is definitely a larger, larger canvas. And by the way, I just wanted to mention Owen Roisman. He's probably one of those legendary DPs. He shot uh, The Exorcist. So I, I think you can't you can't talk about The Exorcist without mentioning Owen Roisman's brilliant cinematography as well. Yeah. But All right. <clears throat> so I'll share my take. Yes. All right. Um, let's just get the terrible stuff out of the way. CGI animals. Hyenas, snakes, cows. Bad. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is where the lack of post-production money, <laughs> you're going to see it, right? Really shines that they didn't have money to finish this thing. When that stuff shows up on screen, it will take you out of it. It it Every time I've seen this film, whenever I see one of the CGI hyenas, I'm like, crap. 
They're right. like cartoons. Yeah. They are bad. I need it's a like few bad minutes. It's like sci-fi stuff, like yeah. Piranaconda shit. It, it is. And, and you watch it and you <laughs> like, go, just as you're feeling the creepy mood or the philosophical portion of it, that crap shows up in the, the CGI snake and you're like, all right, I'm, I'm out. Give me a few minutes to get back in, okay? The, the other thing I'm going to point out, um, you were talking about Gabriel Mann as Father Francis. I actually think he's the worst thing about this film. Oh, no. He has zero... <laughs> So in a Paul Schrader film, I think you you're, um, you have to be subtle and you have to choose when to be dramatic. Gabriel Mann doesn't know how that works. He <laughs> tends to overact in just about every scene and everything's got to be over the top and dramatic. I, he, like the CGI animals, will take me out of a scene when he continues oh, no. going on and on. Those are my two gripes. All right, so... Obviously, and you guys have said it, this wasn't made for the general horror, horror audience. And by that, I mean the 18 to 29-year-olds um, who are living in the city looking for the gore aspects of, of an exorcist film, right? This really feels like an art house piece of cinema that is speaking to a very niche crowd. Everything about this film is fascinating to me outside of the CGI animals and Gabriel Mann. They are not fascinating. I've heard this film referenced as an outstanding failure. I think it's an interesting experiment in philosophical horror. If you talked about one of the major themes, and, and I, I want to I talk about the themes it explores, because I, I, was, I was writing this down, because I've seen this about three times now, and what fascinates me is try and think of another film that tackles stuff like this. How can God exist in a world filled with so much, so much man-made evil? Mm -hmm. And if evil is man-made, does that mean God is man-made too? Is religion a benefit when so many people use it as a device to control or oppress people? <laughs> there is a fantastic scene when Father Francis is shocked that there are bloodstains in a pagan church and Marin just makes this side comment, hey, that uh, kind of reminds me of the Inquisition. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's just a slap in the face, right? Yeah. So it, the other thing it tackles is the atrocities of World War II and late imperial colonialism and how both feed intolerance and violence. And you could make the case. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm not saying the British were the equivalent of the Nazis or anything, but there are some instances that happen historically that are, are too close for comfort, right? Um, what is the cosmos saying when you choose good, but evil still happens? And what is the point of faith and religion? Here is the most interesting aspect of the film. And why I think something, is it called Movie Guide, Brad? Yes. This is why that is the, whoever writes for Movie Guide, just idiots. Because hey, they, you hold your tongue. They're idiots. <laughs> because for a Christian website, they should have rated this thing like a plus four. Because it gets to the heart of that last question. Like, what is the point of faith in religion? And I think if you want to find a film that well, outlines, they wouldn't like that because you're questioning faith and religion. Oh, I know, but I think you should. And I'm, I'm going to say something just totally crazy here. Roman Catholicism and Scientology are both beneficial. They're both beneficial. They they have their purpose because I think one of the biggest themes that this film talks about 
and really hammers home. It's not trying to tell you as a viewer that there's no such thing as evil, man makes it, et cetera, da, 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 da. If you really take a step back and go, what is the central conflict of this film? And what is Father Marin? Because it's his story arc, right? Uh-huh. And he goes through all of this. And at the end of the day, if the movie was just about, hey, evil is man-made, you can't put it on religion, et cetera, then he wouldn't be a priest at the end of the film. But he is a priest at the end of the film. He comes out of this and says, I'm going to go and I have faith and I'm going to continue it. And there's a line that kind of sneaks by, but when you hear it, it really, I think, is what Schrader is really trying to say, that religion is really about surviving evil. It's not conquering it. If you look at the exorcism in play and you look at possession and all these other things, it's not about casting the devil out. The devil's just going to go into something else. It's not about stopping the British or stopping the Nazis. Some other group is going to come along and do the same thing, right? Um, and the institution of religion itself can be evil, just as it's you know portrayed within the Inquisition. But religion at its core is super important to the human condition because it's the one thing that you have to survive evil. It's all about surviving evil, not conquering it. And... To me, if Movie Guide had picked up on that, it would have been like, well, this is like a plus 10. Because how many movies out there are just saying religion is so important in your life? Because it's not about whether or not you go to heaven. It's not about whether or not you're, um, you got a checklist and you go, wow, I had more good things than bad things. It's, it's really trying to say something that you know religion or that belief is what's going to help you get through this crazy world and all these evil things. And that's why I say Scientology as an institution is just batshit crazy. Roman Catholicism as an institution is batshit crazy. However, Christianity and maybe even Scientology have a purpose and a good purpose if it helps a person survive evil in the world. Now, what the institution does with those rules and with those people is just terrible um, in some cases, but in other cases, there's, there's obviously a lot of examples where those institutions can raise the community and everything else. But why I really love this film is it tackles all those themes and it is a really good exorcist sequel because to your point, Brad, it's focusing in on what I think is the most interesting part of the original film and highlighting that and pushing the exorcism and everything to the back. And it's basically saying, yeah, the devil isn't just going to, you know, do what you expect. The devil's going to take this kid who is suffering and go, well, evil's not that bad if I heal him, right? Evil's not that bad if I do all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what the devil would do. And so it, this movie is so smart. And Schrader really creates this powerhouse film that basically says, okay, this movie isn't about Marin taking on the devil and performing an exorcism. This film is about the conflict between a man and his faith in God. And will he ultimately choose to be Mr. Marin or Father Marin? I mean, it's a Paul Schrader film through and through. (laughs) And he he wants to tell this a story about the evil of men, not the evil of Satan, and how one man is going to use his faith to rise above it. Like I, I find myself to be extremely religious. 
but I don't go to church every Sunday. But the reason why I find myself extremely religious is religion is what helps me get through like the atrocities of the world yeah. and the personal convictions. Um, and it gets me closer to God, but being closer to God doesn't mean I have to go to a, a, a building. It just means that you, you have to, you have to embrace your faith and you have to be a good person within what can be a shitty world. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think, some of my most spiritual moments I've had in my life have come outside of church. I don't think if I've, I've had many spiritual moments inside of a church, it's with other people. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, you brought up a good point. Like <clears throat> there aren't many movies that during the time you're thinking of, well, why, why am I in the position I am with the church or, 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 or what has caused me to, step away and this is like bringing up like i'm sure they didn't really and i'm kind of glad they didn't but you could kind of um uh, major granville you could kind of see him as like oh you know they could really have like leaned on him as like this christian guy you know this yeah. guy who is overtly christian and i'm i'm good and all this stuff and then you just see all the atrocities that he does and we see that all the time today and have in the past where it's smartly people, people will say, you know, oh, I'm a Christian. And then they go home and beat the shit out of their kids or, you know, all this stuff. Or, you know, they can't accept anyone who was not uh, straight white and uh, middle class, you know. So th this makes you think of that and think of all these situations and think about my current situation and your current situation is like, where, where am I with, with faith? Um, and you don't get that with, I, I definitely didn't get it with the beginning. Like the beginning is, is, is completely on the other side of the spectrum. Um, I did want to bring up before I forget, I think it's very, timely of this movie well it's a bad timing of this movie because in 2004 i believe saw comes out yeah and so horror takes this completely other turn and goes into like the torture gory sort of thing heady porn is not <laughs> heady porn um <laughs> heady sort of horror films with gore um really aren't until like 2004 16 something like that you know it's 10 years after this movie comes out do we start getting more but it but it has it and and it does but at this moment like when it comes out the movie going audience is not willing to sit through a two-hour film where a guy is wondering about his lost faith and whether or not he uh is going to go back and they I, want to see some guy in a reverse bear trap. Like no, that's what I, they want. I, I get that. And I, I think I almost think this is um if you if if you were to come to films and go, man, I, I really like horror movies like A twenty four, what they put out in Midsummer, et cetera, I'd be like, Well, you you're really gonna love the the Dominion film because it is tackling with these these big real world questions, these faith questions. But man, it's got some shocking elements. And the shocks in it, I think, are amped up because of what's on the line for the Marin character. You've got this dream sequence. And I'll be honest with you, that dream sequence, it's got a jump scare in there with the face. And I, I wet myself and had to turn the lights on real quick. And I'm like, nope, watching this one uh, with the lights on. 
but you also get the statues and, and painting and the artwork that's super creepy. You get this leg surgery that's really gruesome while a dead baby is being delivered with maggots. Um, yeah. You get these two soldiers that are ritualistically murdered, and it's gory. You get um, in the fashion of the saints. In the thing. fashion of the saints, yeah. You get these massacres and shootings that are so shocking when the major shoots a woman. Um, and then also the school massacre happens at a pivotal part of the film that, I, I mean, I'm my fists are clenched because of the tension. And the horror is a combination of the, the gory jump scares with stuff that you don't want to see because it's, it's too realistic or it's too real world. So I, I think this has a ample amount of tension and scares and gore to it. It's just that the themes are are throughout this thing through and through and that's that's what i'm attracted to more so than that list of, of scary elements i guess it's more of like a uh meditation on the nature of evil and faith yeah versus that sort of you know jump scare fun house horror film that everybody expects when they see exorcist because i don't know if you watched the series but the series very much followed that there was I jump scares the there season. was a possession yeah. yeah um and it's you know it's also interesting by the way i prefer to take the ending when he walks away like that sort of searchers like ending when he walks away into the dust cloud i prefer to keep it as more of like ambiguous like are we really sure i mean we know he's going to become a priest again right but maybe there's some other event that's going to need to take him to that point. So I think it's ambiguous when he walks away. Well, is he going to, is he going to join the church again? Or does he still need a little bit more searching beyond that? I like to take it. The ending is that way, but I, I, when in the, I, look, in I think the, that's in very, the beginning. It's overtly. Yes, that he does. Yeah. He, well, yeah. so I was just about to say exorcist, the beginning, they built in some of that, like, what is the church hierarchy doing in terms of cover-ups? Because it's almost like the the Gabriel Mann counterpart played by James Darcy was almost there to sort of like watch Marin mm -hmm. and make sure certain things happen. And so they built in this sort of like organized religion can be corrupted. And yet at the end, he's he's strolling towards the Vatican, getting ready to like be like, soldier up, let me be an exorcist for good or whatever. But here it's a little bit more ambiguous, and I I, th um, I think it's I, a, I I agree with you. It's ambiguous, but that's that's that character. Like he's going to go. Yeah. I think it's so smart because he knows. Okay, I'm going to go back to the church, but I'm always going to wrestle with doubt because that's the nature of human beings. I, yeah. I mean, again, that's what makes the first Exorcist so good. Is the central priest isn't sure if he has his faith, and he's always wrestling with that. And so Marin is a character that carries through. I mean, this version of Marin matches perfectly to the Max von Sydow version in the first Exorcist, because to your point, he's going back to the church. He's got his faith, but you know he's going to question it at some point. Because well, anyone who anyone who ever says they have never questioned their faith or never has doubted is an absolute liar. Yeah, I agree. It's like I don't masturbate. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is that analogy yes um but no i that's why i think i mean when when you were talking about it brad and going well i got to talk this thing through i have to talk it through too because i'm sitting here going is, is it just a brilliant film that has some dodgy cgi in it and it's one of paul schrader's best 
but it has some dodgy CGI and, and one bad performance, in my opinion, or is it just a really good film and a really good sequel? I don't know. I think it's one of those films where it borderlines, um, like give this thing a couple of more million and go clean it up. And I, I think it would, I, I think it would almost be like a masterpiece. Now, if you drop the whole reference to the exorcist and go, well, it's just dominion and it's a, it's a priest film or another Paul Schrader like production. I don't, I don't know if it works better because I think the mystique of the exorcist franchise adds an element to it. Mm. Um, I, I actually think just calling it dominion and not having anything to the exorcist, it would be a good film. The fact that it's such an interesting prequel. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I think the Exodus Two Heretic is a dumb film. It yeah. it's dumb. Now our good friend Sammy loves it, and I love that he loves it because I will say this: that movie swings for the fences. It is absolute bonkers. I appreciate it for that, but I think it it's just it's such a misguided adventure. Whereas the third one and then this one are really good interesting, um, almost brilliant takes on that original story. No, I, I think this has a lot of brilliance to it. There are a few things that take you out of it. Like you said, the CGI, Oh, when yeah, you see those hyenas oof. for the first time, you're, I, I was, I was taken aback. I was like, uh, th- those can't be in this movie. Yeah, you it's almost like, oh, that. did I turn on my PS1 by accident? Yeah. What happened? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's are those even worse in Exorcist the beginning. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. even worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but yeah. uh, w- uh, I mean, I just I just appreciate that Schrader took a, a tact and a, a direction and a vision that's just completely different. I mean from all the other movies, because when you look at the exorcist, the beginning, like there's, there's all the callbacks to the first movie. There's the Pazuzu demon head that they find. Oh, there is the stopping clock. There is even captain Howdy shows up in it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now captain Howdy shows up in this one, but it's in, it's in that sort of Salvador Dali, Alfred Hitchcock spellbound dream sequence, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I absolutely love that. Very artistic. Um, actually oh yeah yeah yeah. and even just just the imagery itself of of him with the the gauze like not knowing who he is and then like peering through it with his eye or whatever like it's just it's great imagery um but it's like you know rennie harlan and company took like the safe route in giving you know horror fans what they were expecting and schrader went somewhere completely different and um thank god that it all backs backs it all up you well know? do we do we want to give our final thoughts on on this one and get to the beginning because i i do want to talk about that one um and maybe yeah. give a public service announcement on it of why you should never see it <laughs> yeah um but yeah I'll, I'll start with you jose uh we just got done having a very interesting conversation uh which i knew it would be interesting about dominion the paul schrader film uh do you think it's a bomb it is not a bomb um even if I weren't a, a huge Paul Schrader fan, um, I love a movie that makes me think that just doesn't hand me pat jump scares and, you know, serves up a sequel that's like the, all the other sequels. Um, so, yeah, no, not a bomb. Uh, it's it's a great meditation on evil, the nature of evil and faith. Awesome. 
All right, Brad, you're up next. 2005's Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. What do you think? Did you come to a decision? You still struggling a yeah, little bit? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely not a bomb for me. Um, I, I still have a few problems with it. Mainly, some of those effects are just atrocious. But I think this movie is going to sit with me for a long time. <clears throat> and, yeah, I, I think that says a lot about a movie, especially when you think, when I watch this again... I'm going to have even stronger feelings for it. I'm going to, things are going to resonate even more. I'm going to pick up more on, on this, um, the evils of man and the evils of the world, uh, questioning of faith, all, all those themes that we talked about are going to even kind of, um, be enhanced by further viewings of it. So yeah, it's not a bomb. And I, I think you have to praise a director for sticking to, kind of their thesis and saying, no, this is the movie I'm making. And, and when you see the final product and you're like, Oh yeah, you were right. Like that was the movie they should have made because I think sequels sometimes are like, Oh no, it has to be bigger and badder and all that stuff. But look at some of the great sequels, look at aliens and Terminator two. Like they switch yeah. what you would think that a sequel would be. That's a good point. And they give you something different because we've seen the first one. We saw the exorcist when they try to do it again and like the heretic and even Legion is a little different. I mean, they're not as good here. It's like, no, I'm serving you something that you don't think about as much, but it's still an exorcist movie. It's just taking this other route. And this one is going to make you think. Um, and that's kind of what I, I praise it more for. It's kind of sticking to your guns and saying, no, I'm right. I know I'm right. Nice. I like that. Uh, I'm, I'm in agreement with both of you. This is definitely not a bomb. Uh, I find this film to be so interesting. It's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, and Angel and I were having a discussion. Uh, obviously, she's, she is mentally being challenged with a lot of questions being in college, et cetera. And when you know, issues of faith, religion, all that stuff comes up, you know, she, she will always point out things. Well, look at what, look at what Catholic Church did. Look what Christianity does, et cetera. And I'm always constantly remind her, look, uh, yeah, throw Scientology in there, throw, throw any belief in there, whatever you want to call it. Um, there is a difference between a church, a religion, and a faith. And you, they're, they're all extremely different. And you can't look at faith and say that somebody's faith is equated to what a church does and you have to judge them on that. No, they're two separate things. What happened with the Spanish Inquisition or... Anything of that nature doesn't necessarily determine what, you know, John Smith does when he goes to church every Sunday. It's, it's totally different. And I love the fact that Schrader took a film and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the world's evil. You have all these questions, et cetera. But let's have a really interesting dialogue about the, the purpose of faith and how it isn't just to conquer evil, but to survive it. And that's just a message and even a question or even a statement I, I just don't see enough of um, because I'm, I get really, uh, I don't know, my skin crawls a little bit when people go after other people about being Christian or believe this, that, or the other, and they're judging them on something that an institution does when, when you take a step back and go, man, that person needs that faith because they're going through some crappy stuff, right? Or they're just trying to survive. And, um, you know, a horror movie about an exorcism that has that type of message Dude, you don't get that kind of stuff. Um, and, and this is very much a, a film made for an adult horror connoisseur. And, and if you fit that bill, you're going to love this film, in my opinion. 
All right, so let's talk about the other one. Let's talk about the other one. Uh, Rennie oh, Harlan's Jesus, God. 2004. So this was released before, even though it was produced after. It was released before Dominion. Um, can can we just start with uh, Wow? What a what a difference in openings. Um, yes. in, in my opinion, if you ever wanted to see how two different filmmakers can radically change the tone of a film based on the same content, but they're doing something completely different in the first 10 minutes, that these are the two films you would compare. But I would honestly just go out there and say there is no reason for you ever ever to watch exorcist the beginning watch dominion and you may you may read about it and go oh i hear they didn't like dominion so they went and did something exorcist the beginning stay away from it it it, it will possess your soul and just tarnish it with now terribleness. I, I will slightly disagree with that i i do think this the 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 beginning i think is pretty trashy junk it's junk um the kind of late third act twist I, I I almost lost my goddamn mind. I was like, <laughs> what are you even doing? But I I do think as an exercise of seeing how one overarching idea can go two completely different ways, I think this is one of the movies this is one of those where you can see it take place. Like you hear about, oh, they made this decision when they made this movie, and if they didn't make this decision, it would have been a completely different movie. Well, here you can see that in you can see that experiment come to life. But you don't have and to watch it. You can just trust us. That is terrible. You I don't think have, you to. have to. No. Well, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. I, I think it's I think it's a curiosity thing because I, I I just I I see a filmmaker and a writer who is way more skilled and has way more trust in what they are doing as opposed to another filmmaker who was just going to be like, look how fucking edgy I am. Look at these upside down crosses. Like I'm fucking not, metal. All right. That's I, I don't know what you guys. So when I watch them in the same order, Jose did, which you watch the Schrader one and you go, I'm going to go watch the beginning because they're supposed to have more scares, right? It's supposed to be scarier. First 10 minutes, you get this really dopey, stupid beginning, right? And so then, like the Crusades or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Like yeah. So, you know, it's supposed to be the Crusades, but later in the film they talk about the fact that Christianity had never really gone that that further into the continent. So it's not. It was all just in service of the fact that great evil and deaths happened on that particular uh, site, which is where they built the church to try to purify it and then buried it. And so, you know... This one is the true Hollywoodization of how they can just take an idea and screw it, right? You're going to see so many crosses of St. Peter in this movie that it is will rock for, your world. For a yes, movie. the amulet from like the first movie. Yep. And so they even mirrored the structure of the exorcist as well. So instead of a rack, we get that. I don't know what the hell that was. It was dodgy CG. It looked terrible. And then there's like all these people being crucified on upside down crosses. It's like, who did that? Why? Who is this person? Yeah, it, it, it's it's a hot mess. Well, Peter now that the twist, Apostle was was crucified upside down because he didn't yes. believe that he was was it like not worthy to be crucified the way that. Jesus What's funny is like you guys are talking. So Jose, you were t you were basically saying, well, in the back end of the film, they explain this. Look, yeah. this movie really should have been called instead of exorcist or whatever, it should be called exposition, the movie. So yes. for, for a film that was supposed to be designed with more scares and everything, 
the first half of the film, everybody is telling you the plot and then they tell you what they are doing or just did. It's all exposition with a couple of CGI jump scares involving birds, CGI beer, uh, birds or whatever. It's, it's super weird. Yeah. But let me let me just tell you folks why if, if you've never seen any of the Exorcist sequels and you're, and you're like, well, I'm like Brad. I'm really curious to see this other film. Folks, look, I, do let it. me just let me just describe to you a scene of what you're going to be you know, exposing your eyeballs to for, for two hours that you can just avoid and trust us on this. So there's a new Rachel character. Her, her name is Sarah in this film. Okay. And so at some point in the film, Sarah takes a shower and then she puts a towel on. And then as she's getting out of the shower with her towel on, the lights go out. Right. And then she starts to, to creep around in the building with just a towel on to find out what's going on. And she's looking for whatever the 1940s version of a fuse box is um, or whatever that thing is. And then all of a sudden the lights just automatically come on and the radio happens to be on and it's blaring all this music and it's a big old jump scare. So, yes, in an exorcist film, they pretty much recreated like Friday the 13th part six or seven in, in the middle of a of a what was supposed to be, uh, I, I don't know, a. Uh, a sequel to one of the greatest What's horror the films Jason of all time. movie where the girl is working for the FBI and she does all that stuff. And then she runs out. Is that part six? I don't know. Was that Jason X I, when they're trying to capture him? Yeah. And then, then they blow him up with a grenade or whatever. I, yeah. Who knows? Was that Jason goes to hell? It is Jason. Goes, to, goes hell. Yeah. to hell. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's, this is, they pretty much put a Friday the 13th trope in the middle of this film with a really bad jump scare. And that that's all this film is. That sequence is just done over and over and over again to varying degrees with bad CGI. Um, and you're, you're just subjected to the worst that Hollywood could ever deliver. And, and don't get me wrong. I like Rennie Harlan as a director when he does action films like Cutthroat Island, Cliffhanger, stuff like that. Rennie Harlan should never do a horror film. Ever, 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 ever. Uh, well, it's funny you, it's funny you mention that because... One of the films four is not bad. So one of the films that actually put him on the map was a, was a indie horror film that he did called prison. Um, uh, and that's what brought his new lines attention to him. And then they hired him for, um, Elm street four. Let me reframe this. This reminds me of him. Okay. Harlan. (laughs) Don't ever touch another horror film again, please. You know, Troy, I think you're right. The, Exorcist the beginning I think is an is an hour and fifty four minutes. There's probably a seventy two minute film there, and it takes way too long to get to, you know, the jump scares and stuff. But I will admit that when the jump scares start, and I know Brad has a different take on this, I thought the twist was kind of pretty fantastic. Oh Jose, right? oh come on, come Jose, on, Jose, no, I, no, I'm sorry, bad I, Jose. I dug it. They gave us the ruse with the little kid, Ugh. and it's like, okay, you, here we go. Like the serious? true story, like the true story with the little boy being possessed, and then holy shit, it's the woman. Jose, like, I, I, you're not on Watch Skip Plus. That. Justin's going to be really nice about it. I'm going to tell you, you need therapy. All right, that oh. that is stupid. That twist was dumb. I, I, it's ugh. too late. It's too late. It's so dumb too. It oh. It's terrible. It is true. They do force it on you a little too late, and then it gives us that whole like 
WrestleMania uh, 25 exorcism, which is and, stupid. And, and then she dies for and, no reason. Oh, my God, that's the exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> and, the man, that CGI was awful. Dude, that, the makeup on Ugh. poor Sarah is, oh. Yeah, the Exorcist yeah. was done in 1973, and it looks a thousand times yeah. better than this. Uh, well, and look, wasn't she a Bond girl? Wasn't that actress a Bond girl, Isabella Skorupko? I don't know. Could be. Don't I know. Think, I think she was, and um, I love how they played up the fact that like she was yeah, she was a golden sex. She was yeah, she was kind of like sexing up um Marin and then later later in the film she was like you wanted this sticker there <laughs> is no sexual tension between Italian. those two okay, okay. none of them yeah uh, yeah she was in goldeneye right with xena yeah. on a top that was a uh, funky jansen yeah oh boy I love that. hey Honest, look you're, pro- you're probably asking yourself what is the worst ending in all of cinema because <sighs> you're pretty sure you just watched the worst movie of all time well it's in this it's film this one yeah, yeah you got scars guard who um you know, I'm, I'm Mr. Marin, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so at the end of the film, he, he shows up to the cafe and the one guy's like, Hey, I told you to go look there. Did you find anything? He's like, Nope, didn't find anything. He's like, okay, thanks, Mr. Marin. And, and he stands up and goes, it's father Marin and walks off into like this, just the worst it's CGI father Marin, motherfucker. Well, he, yeah, he didn't drop the motherfucker. The That's bird. probably on the cutting room floor, but he walks off into like the worst CGI background of, of the oh Vatican city. Oh my God, that city. blue screen is terrible. Yeah, hello like, blue screen. As some superhero He's- priest. And I literally laughed out loud uh, when yeah. I saw, I mean, I've seen this thing now twice, which is two times too many. Um, it's freaking terrible, man. Well, it's miserable. And then, but I fair, will say there is a pretty graphic kid death in it, which I don't know. Oh, the hyena think, one? Yeah, I think that kind of, well, if the hyenas. If the hyenas weren't so freaking terrible, by the way, in the commentary, Harlan says, and Schrader says this as well, you can't train hyenas. Apparently, Harlan tried to, and he was like, they couldn't do it because they're so instinctual and primitive and violent. Yeah. Um, And so he was like, so we had to do the CGI and it did not look great. Yeah. Yeah. Rennie. Thank you. Well, to be fair, Rennie is, I I will say, I do like some of his, but subtlety is not something that he does well. No, um, no so he will beat you over the face. That's why. That's why I like anything. Cutthroat Island. I, that's no. There's no subtlety there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's why I like Ford Fairlane. <laughs> I love Ford Fairlane. <laughs> there you go. Oh, um, by the way, do you know? You know that he. So the the Hollywood legend goes. The the legend goes. He only agreed to do Die Hard two because they would let him do Ford Fairlane. Sure. Two, because he was absolutely enamored with Andrew Dice Clay and wanted to do a vehicle. Two great Rennie Harlan films. Um, but yeah, I, I, okay. After 2000, he's out of the horror genre. He's not allowed. And, and Jose, you're in timeout for liking that twist. Oh, um, I, I, I don't can know. I, can I, can I, I, I admit it. something too? Oh, it's, swear it's, to God. I, we, oh, no. Okay. I, I, goes I, cleavage was actually pretty enticing. Uh, I, well, yeah. But I kind of like the flashbacks of the beginning. Shut your mouth. You, I, I've you never, mean the, no. the Nazi incident, how they yeah. worked the flashback? The no. how they, like, no. I like how it was like inner, well, not as like, they didn't start with it. It was just kind that of. That was terrible. I it actually, was interesting no. how no. they woke Oh my in God. There, yeah. no. I kind of like that better than. You start. both are drunk. Listen. Okay. Well, I was just trying to be nice. Nobody. No, I like a- the hammer of the start. I like the hammer of seeing that the first thing, yeah. but I did like how they wove it in there. Terrible. To give him a little mystery about his. Okay. You well, don't even, the whole point. It, look, <laughs> it is just a terrible atrocity that Marin had to actually choose 10 people to die. 
present that. Schrader does a great job of, of putting that and just saying, I'm going to anchor his issues with faith on this story. It doesn't need to be a mystery. Harlan takes all of the tension out of that sequence by chopping it up. And even yeah. his camera choices and the music and everything that happened. I mean, it's so crappy and over the top. It's just ridiculous in this version compared to it being a very serious, just heartbreaking moment that kicks, you know, Dominion off here. It, it's, it's, it's just terrible. You guys and, are crazy. You guys are crazy. And by the, like by it. the way, just, just as a comparison for craftsmanship, remember they had the same DP, but different directors, right? Yeah. So in Schrader's version, when he chooses the 10 people, there's a shot where Marin is pointing like behind him. Right. Later in the movie, they're like, well, you know, where did you find this stuff in this church? And he uses the same camera move and the same point that that Marin does. And it's a signal visually like there will be evil there, just like in the beginning. Does Harlan do anything like that? Well, once no, again, no, Randy no, Harlan does doesn't do anything subtle. Nothing quite like that. <laughs> Ter- it's terrible. Look, usually we track things behind it. And when we talk about two films, you know, I'll, hey, did we think this is about? I'm not even tracking this crap. Um, we're only tracking yeah. Dominion. This one, I, again, it's a public service announcement. If you've never seen this film, stay far away from it. It's possessed with just bad taste. Um, oh, what? I have a weird, weird crazy credit thing for exorcist the beginning oh boy okay yeah okay. shoot go ahead okay so one of the sculptors for the for the statues and some of the creatures or whatever is one stephen norrington so i checked this it is the stephen norrington who directed blade and the league of extraordinary gentlemen um he is actually a sculptor and a creature designer Huh. Weird, right? Yeah, that is kind of crazy. That is a crazy So character. he did some of the, the sculpting for this. It's so one of the stink few, is all over this movie, too. Huh. It's one of the few <laughs> films that he's actually worked in after retiring as a director after League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That is pretty crazy. Strange. Wow, he got put in the movie jail. Yes. <laughs> um, he sure did. All right. N- enough about that crappy, stupid film. Do you, did you guys watch any other Exorcist films? Um I watched the whole damn series. Oh, you did? I you watched, watched I yeah. watched it all too. I okay. I didn't too. I've seen one and three so many times. I put those on the back burner in case I ran out of time. And I did. So I only saw the second one, which um I, I shared my thoughts on that. I it's I I, I, I like it a little bit more than you do because it's just so bonkers. Yeah. All all I could think, you know, we talk about those details in films that show up and take you out of it. When she get in the second one, when she goes to the balcony and you see oh God. that, I'm like, oh my God, how did that pass inspection? That's, that's like the most dangerous thing I've ever seen in any kind of part building ever. Um, even for, for the There's 70s no rail. And, and when she comes out of her fever dream, she definitely should have gone over. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So uh, I, I had a quick question for, for us. Yeah. I've, I've had to put information together to, um, help people make decisions on things. So this got me thinking, what was the meeting like where they decided to double down and basically restart and invest another $50 million into a film when they had one basically 90% done? Like, what was that meeting and how did that pitch go? Because it is insane to me that you would say, all right, let's double down. Not only are we going to double down, 
we're going to like give it 125% more budget than what we started with. So Schrader actually says he lays all of that on Jim Robinson. When, okay. The way that the way that he talks about Robinson in this um, Schrader on Schrader book, um, he is just the money man who just says, this is what I'm going to do and this is how it's going to be. And um, I, I guess Robinson felt like he just had money to burn and was like, yeah, let's do it again. Let's get it right. Um, so apparently he was quite the the uh, let's throw money at it and make it bigger. You know, yeah. see, and I, I, I think it also comes down to trilogies um, or not trilogies, franchises is what I was trying to say. Yes. So that and that too, the moniker of the Exorcist is gonna. It's it's why the rights sold for. Wasn't there some astounding price that Bloomhouse bought the rights to Exorcist or something? Yeah, it's, I, I can't. I can't remember what it was, but yeah, I'm thinking like 2004 Van Helsing, um, Resident Evil Apocalypse. Um, oh yeah, you you have so many studios and stuff like that who are looking at it. You you mentioned Saw. I don't think anybody knew that was going to be a franchise out of the gate. But Warner Brothers and all these big studios are notorious for just saying, here we have a particular property, and if we can kickstart a franchise with something, then it's going to guarantee you know X amount of future films, TV, whatever it is. So Exorcist for them, is for Warner Brothers, is probably one of their biggest films of all time. And if, if they have – if they can kickstart a franchise and they're seeing some horror franchises are starting to take off – you know, why not this one? So, um, Oh, and here's, so I found it. This is, this is the article. The date is, the date is July 26, 2021. And it says here, a new report from New York times reveals universal pictures and Peacock have closed a 400 million plus mega deal to buy the rights to an exorcist trilogy. Morgan Creek entertainment has held the rights to the franchise and is working with David Gordon green and Blumhouse's Jason bloom on the new movies. 400 million. million. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Well, look at how, I mean, those Halloween films have made some you oh, know, yeah. money. So, yeah. uh, you want to do some listener feedback? It's, it's been a busy week for us. Sure, buddy. Yeah. I grabbed a few, uh, Let's do it. All right, here we go. First one is from our, our listener, Philip, good friend. So he says, I loved your last podcast on Amityville three. I agree with all your insights and views in that hot dumpster fire of a bunch of producers throwing the everything in the kitchen sink of haunting film tropes with some lame 3D to boot. I think that pretty much sums it up. Yep. Uh, Candy Clark was the best part of that mess. Candy Clark, Brad. Some some lady. (laughs) Shut up. And her (laughs) scenes were good, but as a whole, not so good. I do think Amityville 2 Possession is better. It's made by Italians in Mexico with an American cast. It's a weird mix, but try to enjoy the first hour as an Italian giallo film and view it from that perspective. It's really on par with those films. As far as The Exorcist... I was hoping for the biggest bomb of sequels part two, but that whole Paul Schrader art fest versus Rennie Harlan's box office version of a classic make for a good backstory. I hope you mentioned the hot mess of part two. It was a collection of talent that didn't quite hit the mark. That is an understatement, Philip. Um, oh yeah. I love your October spooktacular podcasts. Always love your banter with Jose. I'm glad he started <laughs> his own too. He's got great insight like Brad and Josh. Happy October. There you go. I told Yay. you there's some feedback for you, Jose. Woohoo. <laughs> Thanks, Philip. I, I thank I, you, Philip. Yeah, you're spot on with your assessment. Um, this is from Chris. 
says, hi, I've been listening to your show for a little while now and just wanted to tell you that I agree with you on Amityville 3D. The movie was a bomb, a big, boring bomb, <laughs> such a wasted <laughs> opportunity to make a fun, creepy movie in 3D. I did enjoy the episode about it. So there's that. Well, thank you, Chris. Awesome. Uh, this is from Zoe says, Hey guys. And cool. Zoe is a host of the backlook cinema podcast. Go check them out. So he says, Hey guys, I was just scrolling through movie soundtracks that were composed by Bill Condi for a new episode that I was working on. I came across the movie classic masters of the universe. And I thought, yo, maybe that movie didn't get a fair shot at the box office. It was perfectly cast with Dolph Lundgren as he man Surely this is worth a review. I might be wrong, but maybe it is. Maybe it shouldn't have bombed. I don't know what you think, Brad. It absolutely shouldn't have bombed. I love Masters of the Universe. Are you going to put it on the schedule? Because I know it's a big favorite of yours. I am. I am. I'm going to. Okay. Uh, I love Masters of the Universe. It's. It's. I will say it is is a little bit of a train wreck, but it's good. It's good. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. I, I'm. I'm with you guys. Uh, last one. I saved this one for last because it's, it's pretty good and it makes me feel good. It's from our good friend Jacob. I was listening to your episode about biker boys and you asked if any listeners have any embarrassing emotional reactions. And well, I have one. Mm. When I was a kid, I convinced my parents to rent Mac and me from 1988, the infamous mm. film funded by McDonald's that has become a so bad it's good film. What was supposed to be an imaginative and exciting kids film made me deeply sad as a child. The idea that this poor orphan alien was hiding out, fixing things inside a family home made me feel very bad for the alien. He was scared alone. It was still helpful to the family. Later in the film, the characters put Mac into a giant teddy bear. And when a spontaneous dance party erupts at a McDonald's, he joins in on the fun. That also made me very sad because he had to wear a bear suit in the end, the alien family is reunited and become celebrities on Earth, but they never get to go home. Somehow, I knew that they would always be freaks and outsiders on Earth, and that also made me very sad. I remember rejecting the VHS tape and being a very sad little boy. Oh, Jacob was Aww. a very thoughtful little boy. He was. Yeah. Wow. He was so he sweet. He reminds me of me. I want... Yeah. I love this. Jacob, it, yeah. come, come guest on, on watch skip plus. I agree. <laughs> hey, I, I agree with Jacob. There's, there's some movies I'll, I'll share another little tidbit since, um, I was, I was very open about biker boys. There is one film. My family makes fun of me all the time because I cannot get through it without just bawling. And it's not Stop. because it makes me sad. It's because I just am filled with so much joy and, and I'm so proud, but it's, uh, it's babe. Um, when he tells oh. that pig that'll do, I, I just, I, I gets to me, man. It gets to me. Oh, Troy. Yeah. I cry at babe. <laughs> there you go. But that's, that's a very awesome. paternal relationship with that pig. So oh, I God it. dang it, man. I, I mean, my eyes are starting to water a little bit cause I'm replaying that scene in my, okay. Oh. Brad. Yes, sir. How do uh, others reach us and uh, tell us their <laughs> thoughts on God dang it. Stupid <laughs> pig. Um, how do they reach us and share their thoughts on the films that we talked about or give us some recommendations or share some just awesome stories with us? Yeah, that's not about pod at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Troy, yes. I did something on our website today. What did you do? We have a friends of the show links. And so I will never forget who not to mention <laughs> Matt. So 
Uh, yeah, so if you go there, you'll see the likes of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, Watch Skip Plus, The VHS Files, Night of Living Podcast, The Backlook Cinema Podcast, uh, The Mixtape Podcast, The Mixtape Podcast, Matt, and The Iron <laughs> Sequel. So go check that out. Links to all the shows are on that link, uh, are on that page. Um, you can check them all out there. So, uh, yeah. Jose. Very cool. Two of those things are very related right now, right? The Backlook Cinema Podcast and the Watch Skip Plus. Plus. Yeah, they we'll are very that. related. We, uh, Justin and I, the hosts of Watch Skip Plus, we guested on um, Zoe's program, Backlook Cinema Podcast. Hey, this is just and, one big key party, isn't it? <laughs> I know, it is. We it owe is. Zoe we an drew. episode because he's been begging us to do Rumble in the Bronx and we keep, our schedules have been terrible. We got we to gotta fix that, man. Fix it. It was a great time. We had so much fun. We looked at Brian's song, uh, the 70s movie, TV movie that was released in theaters starring uh, Billy D. Williams and uh, the late James Caan. Oh. Uh, so that episode is out now. It's It, it was a great episode. I'd never seen it um, oh, wow. prior to the to the to the podcast. Uh, and it's it's actually really good. James Caan and Billy D. Williams are great in it. Yeah, it's what's, one of the best sports movies of all time. It's I, yeah, I would uh, say so. It's it's really great. What's on Watch Skip Plus agenda? Uh, we released. Um, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> um, so this comes uh, out on Wednesday. Uh, Thursday. Your our show comes out on Wednesday. Yours comes. Yours out on comes out on Wednesday. Ours comes out on Thursday. Um, we are doing Hellraiser. Actually, Ooh. the new one, the, the streaming, the new one. Okay. And we're going to have Brian Stevens back on. Oh, nice. Uh, Brian had guested on. I don't even remember hey. episodes anymore. <laughs> yes. He was the human canvas from. Uh, yeah. 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 I went uh, back he, and watched that on Samaritan. Oh, did you watch that. it? Oh, yeah. 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 Because uh, yeah. I was a big Ink Masters fan and I had forgotten that. So I went back and, and, and watched it. it yeah. Yeah, I love when he strides in and he's like, hey, look, it's the worst artist ever. <laughs> yeah, he pulled his dick out in front of that guy. I was like, oh, God. I was like, wow, this is a Brian I've never seen. But um, yeah, yeah, so we should be doing that. I, I was going to I was gonna try to watch Skip Singular Smile, um, but I'm not sure I'm going to have time to do that. It's, oh, it's been awesome. a busy week. So, I would love yeah. to hear your thoughts on that. We, we really enjoyed it. There were some sharding moments, most definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, Jose, it's always a pleasure. Can't wait to have you on again. Brad, we're working through our sequels. We've got two more. Uh, next one is your pick. What What do you got for us? Oh, boy, Troy. Do I have a film for you? Uh-huh. Do you like American Werewolf in London? I love that movie. It's so good. What about the sequel, Troy? There's a sequel. Oh. There is a sequel. They go to a different city. It's in Paris this time. Oh, Brad. You know how much I am just so excited to see that film? How? I went ahead and bought a 4K from another country for it. And I did the exact same thing. Yeah. It expedited the shipping. So it cost me like $60. (laughs) Yeah. You might regret that purchase. 50 bucks for that. Um, Well, so so here's here's the thing, Jose. You say that, but... I kind of like to have the physical of all the episodes that we do. Yeah, so me too. it's just, it's and if it's available things. in 4k, eh, why not, man? No, it's yeah. true. It's true. And 
Tom Everett Scott and his boxers and Julie Delpy. I mean, you can't lose, right? Yeah. This is not a first time watch for either of us, right, Brad? No. Okay. Did you, did you see this in the theater? I did not. Oh yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we should now we're planning it. I won't say the name cause you know, scheduling and stuff, but we may have a brand new guest join us for that episode as well, which I'm super excited about, but Ooh, I, I, gotta, I can't wait. I love a brand new guest. I got to keep quiet on it because we've been working on this for a while. Um, and it, we just got to make sure the schedules line up, but, uh, I'm super excited to have this person on, uh, make it else? line up, make it line up. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> I, it should, it should, it's gonna be fun. Uh, what, what else, Brad, am I missing anything? Did we get through all this stuff? I think we did. I think we we sufficiently made through everything and had a a quite enlightening discussion on Dominion. Oh, I knew it was gonna be. I mean, Jose brings the A game every time, and uh, I, I I'm I, so oh, excited. Thank to hear for having me. I, I'm, sitting, I, I'm literally sitting right here. You're I you're pretty it. good I, too, Brad. I love guesting. <laughs> you're, you're you bring your A minus game, but oh. <laughs> Someday. Um, what, no. it, what would the equivalent be in the movie guide? <laughs> <laughs> no, Brad's no. a four. A minus one. You no. bring your minus one game. Your Brad, minus two game. Brad's a four <laughs> in movie guide terminology. He's yes. awesome. Uh, I and don't, thank you for the friends page. That That's absolutely amazing. It looks wonderful. Yeah, go, go check those. Yeah, Brad did a really good job of putting a description of the shows on there, too. So if you... If you kind of want to get a feel for what each podcast is like, go to that page. Dude, I totally stole, those are totally stolen from all their stuff. I did not write those. But you did a originally. really good job of laying it out. So Control C, Control C, Control V. Hell yeah. There's some art there. Uh, a little I bit did. of coding, beep, boop, bop. Yeah. There it is. I liked it. Listen, I don't know if you're. Oh, damn it. I did it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Listen. Right. Yeah. See, I do this. Because he always says, he always says, listen. I don't know if you're listening. And I don't like the, the whole listening, listening, like from as, as in having an English degree, you're not supposed to use words like redundancy. Okay. You don't redundancy. like the redundancy. Yeah. Okay. We're going to have to edit that out. Yeah. Now we're just What's keeping it. What's a synonym in. for listen? I don't know. Hearing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a literal sense, yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. Hear me, if yes. you are. Li- hear me. Hear me out. Listener. Hear me out, listener. If you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening, I hope you're having an awesome day. Thank you for uh, listening to our little. That's like four listens. It was. It was. I thought you were trying to correct yourself. I'm just. I'm committing to saying. You are I'm literally Stellan Sardsgar, just digging that grave even I further know. and further. You know what? Go watch American Werewolf in London. Go watch American Werewolf in Paris, because I'm sure we're going to watch both of them. Mm-hmm. Come back next week and hear our thoughts on it, hopefully with a very, very, very special guest. Check you later. Don't lose your head. <laughs>